Anne was a questioner, and I followed her lead in this. She would often say, The human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. We humans have a nasty habit of deciding to believe that things we don't actually understand are explained in some way that we make up, and the next thing we know, we're killing each other over these imaginings. So, this is not going to be a book of advocacy. I am not asserting beliefs. Instead, it is going to be a description of events as I have witnessed them and an inquiry into the ways of communicating with a richly alive, enigmatic, and absolutely remarkable presence that seems to have been with us, at least in part, throughout our recorded history and probably a lot longer than that. But it is also true that it seems to have entirely changed its approach to us in the years since World War II ended. It is now an enormous part of our world. It seeks to become even more central to the human experience. We're dying here, and it doesn't want that. It wants to communicate with us, but it is deeply, profoundly different from us, and so far communication has been essentially impossible. Learning to do it effectively is what my life has been about, and what I hope to convey here. The visitors have been very clear to me. Unless we can communicate with them in a rational, practical, and effective way, they cannot help us. I wish I could provide a simple how-to, a neat list of do's and don'ts. I can't do that, and nobody can. The gap between us is simply too great for a simple list to work. Our visitors stand ready to help us face the jeopardy we are in, and even aid us in solving the problems that we are facing. The degree of their involvement depends on the degree to which we are able to face them and understand what they have to offer us. For reasons that are going to become clear over the course of my story, this is not going to be easy. Far from it, making sense of the relationship will be the greatest intellectual, emotional, and spiritual challenge that mankind has ever faced. If we are able to succeed, though, we are going to experience a vast increase in the range of human understanding. Truly, we are going to enter a new world. Noctivigant presents The Summer of Streber. My ghoulies and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the soulless Jay and Rory Wicks. I have a soul. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. We are here at the final stop, almost final stop, of the summer of Streber. I'm yes. still a rabbit. What? Yeah. What? Remember last episode? I got transformed into a rabbit during the intro. You don't oh, remember this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was a rabbit. Remember? That would explain all the little rabbit pellets I've been finding around the house. That's yeah. weird. I led the last episode, and I don't remember this. 
Yeah, I was a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, though, like the episodes that I know for me, the episodes I lead are the ones I have the least memories about at yeah. the end. I enter into some strange fugue state where game show Nick takes over. Yeah. I remember every second of satanic panic. <laughs> uh, that was fun, though. <laughs> that was, yeah. All right. So speaking of fun, on the topic of today's book, we are reading A New World by Whitley Strieber. This is one of his most recent books. Um, so what'd you guys think? Uh, I think this is my second favorite of the ones that we've read. Okay. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, not just because it was short. That was a bonus. Uh, you know, only, a, what, 160 some odd pages? Mm-hmm. 160 pages exactly. Yeah. But no, I, I, I enjoyed it just because um, while it has some narrative issues. I have questions. Yeah, I, and I have many questions. I, I, I honestly, I felt like he wrote this almost more stream of consciousness and weirdly. I think I like that more than him, like, heavier edited. You yeah, know? no, I mean, especially because, uh, uh, well, I mean, he's at a different stage of his career than he was when he wrote the first three. Yeah. Uh, and so for those who don't know what this book is about, uh, this continues the story of his experiences with the visitors. However, uh, a lot of the material we're going to discuss in this book is very different because it's taking everything he experienced and then adding 40 years to think about it. Yeah. Uh, or in case of breakthrough, 30, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically what this is, is Streber, now that he's had all this time and presumably a lot more experiences, as he says, his contact has never really stopped. Um. He he's now looking back over the course of his career and his experiences and the writing and the books he's released, and he's trying to come to some sort of, I guess, final agreements or some final message that you could take from the collective body of all the stuff that's happened to him. And that includes not just the three that we've read. I mean, he talks about almost every book that he's written on this topic, he mentions at some point in this little like novella book. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. And so that's what I mean. It, it synthesizes everything that's come before it. And because of that, though, because he's not telling, you know, this is what happened to me in the year of 1986, it does jump all over a little bit. And it, he often introduces ideas which seem to contradict each other, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping we're going to be able to dig into because I'm curious if those contradictions are real or they only look that way at first. And I'm, yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm curious to dig into it and see what you see what all of our collective thoughts are on it as well. Uh, that said, uh, well, I have greatly enjoyed this. This is the fifth book in a row. Uh, I know we've only covered three so far on the show, but I read Afterlife Revolution on my own uh, that I've read of Mr. Streber's, and I need a break yeah. after this. Um, no offense to Whitley Streber. He is one of the better uh, prose writers that we've covered on the show. For sure. But... Uh, my 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 brain hurts now yeah. whenever I think about some of the ideas that we have been hammering away at for now, what, three episodes? Yeah, yeah. Well, but Jay, what'd you think? Uh, this was the streamer book I struggled with the most. Mm. Uh, and it, it probably just comes on the heels of, the you know, this is the fourth streamer book in a row that I've read. And uh, I know they're not aliens. I know they're visitors but they look like aliens and they act like aliens and they're behaving in the manner of aliens. So, you know, I'm just knife emoji about all of that. Uh, well, don't worry. We are going to have a lengthy break from the UFO topic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after this, actually, we have a lot of really cool books coming up for after the series, but that is neither here nor there because we are still in the series. That's correct. But we, I mean, we might tease a little bit here at the end. Who knows? Yeah. 
All right. Uh, so are we ready to leap into a new world? Yeah. yeah. Let's uh, let's let's jump in before we do what we do, and that is talk about something completely unrelated. Yeah. We begin, as many stories do, with an end. In 2015, Anne Streber, wife of Whitley Streber, peacefully and willfully departed her mortal form after a protracted battle against cerebral hemorrhages and cancer. Whitley was, predictably, devastated by the loss of his lifelong partner, left adrift without the one person who had kept him sane during his extended contact with visitors from beyond our world. And, into this void, the visitors returned. Having gone silent for several years, Anne's death seemed to trigger the next stage in the initiatory mechanism he believes he had been engaging with since his earliest encounters in communion, prompting him to ask deeper questions, which in turn led to startling new revelations. It is by the light of these revelations that Streber reassesses all his prior experiences in hopes of approaching what may be close to a final verdict regarding the nature of the visitors, what they want, and what that means for those of us here on our material earth. Streber hopes that his work, and this book, will help others find their way into a deeper, richer relationship with the universe. A relationship which, for him, took on new dimensions only after the death and apparent return of Anne, whom he believes continues to work in his favor from the other side, conferring with the visitors in order to ensure that Streber dies with a strong soul and full awareness of the road that lays before us all beyond the veil. Quote, the intensity and complexity of material culture has blinded us to the existence of that subtle and many-faceted enigma we call the single-starved word soul. But this mysterious and denied presence is quite real. It is not supernatural in any way, but rather part of nature. It is also where our visitors live, penetrating only occasionally into this physical level. And as they come closer to us, it is going to become more and more clear that the reality of the soul is much bigger than that of the physical but also that it is nothing like what we have imagined. It's going to become inescapable that not only is consciousness in us, we are in consciousness. He goes on to clarify that one should not assume this means that the soul is somehow undetectable or fully immaterial. Rather, quote, like everything, it is part of reality, by which I mean everything that is material or energetic. Secular culture is correct to believe that there is no supernatural, However, it is mistaken in dropping the parts of the natural world that it cannot yet detect into that basket simply because they have so far evaded measurement. And the reasons for this denial are many. For one, he argues, it is a symptom of how our human brain is wired. Built for survival, we know our brains are actively filtering out millions of points of input which do not aid in our current situation. This is why we don't notice the feeling of our clothing on our skin until we focus on it why we didn't evolve to see ultraviolet light, and why I sometimes cannot find my cell phone despite the fact that it is in my hand. Uh -huh. The reality we perceive is incomplete and is often shaped by both conscious and unconscious processes that render us blind to the greater reality. The visitors, by contrast, don't see reality the same way. Streber defines this as output strategy versus input strategy. Humans operate by an output strategy, meaning our minds construct reality as a sort of desktop computer, only giving us the minimum necessary information to aid survival. For example, we can see that an apple is shiny red and ripe, or mushy and brown. What we don't see is the colonies of bacteria, fungi, and other microorganisms that are causing it to rot, just as we don't see the molecules of fermenting alcohol that soften its flesh. This is because, Streber argues, we don't need to. We just need to know that that is one gross apple and we shouldn't eat it. 
The visitors, by contrast, operate on an input strategy, meaning they see the world by its underlying principles first and manifest reality second. Imagine that you could see reality from within itself. In this state, you could perceive all of physical reality as a mass of swarming electrons, protons, and neutrons from which certain mathematical principles arise, in turn giving rise to physical reality. Rather than seeing the apple, they first see the base elements of the apple, the arrangement of its particles, and from there construct a conclusion about what the apple is. Confused yet? Good. Me too. (laughs) To support this idea, he notes that many of the strangest and most complex crop circles in history appear to form geometric or fractal patterns, patterns which seem to express some sort of mathematical principle if it were laid out in a visual medium. He also notes that more than one contactee has been told that the visitors have the ability to rearrange atomic structures at will. And, quote, if they are seeing the world, as it were, from within, it's not too hard to believe that they might also be able to change it from within as easily as we rearrange flowers in a vase. This, he believes, is part of why contact is so slow, because a fundamental divide exists between us regarding how we see and interact with reality. To find true communion will require both sides to come to a clear and full understanding of how the other sees the world, a process which he believes to be as difficult for us as it is for them. However, that is not to say it is impossible. For their part, the visitors have tried to use our mythology and imagery to meet us halfway. Citing their use of hieroglyphics, sightings of eagle-headed greys, and other images ripped directly from our mythological history, he argues, quote, It is as if they must find things in the world around them that fit the concept they are trying to communicate, and I don't think that they would need to do that unless they were translating a vision that is founded in the underlying structures of reality into one that has meaning at the level of outcome. To further illustrate the wildly different relationship the visitors may have with physical reality, he presents the story of a contactee named Matt, originally reported in the book Extraterrestrial Contact by Kathleen Marden, a former MUFON director of Experiencer Research. Matt owned a small airport where, one night, he saw an anomalous craft hovering over the runway. Curious, he flashed a laser pointer at it, prompting the saucer to rush at him. He immediately began suffering hemorrhages that left him bleeding from the nose and ears. The craft then vanished. As many of the researchers at Skimwalker Ranch learned regarding their own experiences, this incident opened the door to ongoing contact with outside intelligences. Several weeks later, he woke in the night to see a large figure standing at the foot of his bed. Matt, ever prepared, snatched up his pistol and opened fire on the potential intruder. To his shock, the entity instantly vanished, leaving in its place a splash of strange yellow fluid, which is implied to be blood. But that was far from the end. Soon, Matt's home was beset by poltergeist-like phenomenon of startling intensity, which persisted for months. As Streber argues, that activity was caused by the same entity he had shot, who now sought vengeance. Quote, Matt took the body of one of them, but not his access to the physical world. What happened as a result was essentially an act of anger. The individual had lost what they view as a gateway, a body, much more than they see it as a self. We live by the illusion that we are our bodies. They do not. We assume that the death of the body ends the individual's access to physical life. It doesn't. And if they are attacked and hurt and angered, they are likely to continue to act in the physical world against their attackers. And this is going to look to the attacker like the sort of bizarre haunting that Matt experienced. This, he believes, is what sits at the heart of the hitchhiker effect suffered by many of the government operatives 
who investigated Skimwalker Ranch. Investigations which Streber believes were secretly geared towards finding weapons to combat the visitors, though at this stage this assertion is little more than conjecture. Streber then dedicates the rest of Chapter 3 to exploring a question often asked within experiencer circles. Why me? Why do certain people receive visitations and others not? He notes, as other researchers such as John Mack and Bud Hopkins had, that the experiences seem to follow familial lines, and, he suspects, those family lines may be selected due to a history of aggression towards the visitors. One man in the ancient past angered them, hence opening the door for his descendants to become targets for contact, perhaps because they seek to write the original negative encounter, or it's vengeance, or we don't really know. If this is true, Streber suspects his Air Force uncle might have done something to kick off the experiences both he and his family endured. He also notes that, among experiencers who have no family history of contact, many report early childhood traumas involving abuse by trusted elders. While never suffering the more typical parental abuse, Streber recounts his time spent with his sister at the Randolph Air Force Base in 1952, where they were both among the children who were subjected to an experimental technique utilizing a device known as a Skinner box, which was meant to accelerate the educational process. As an aside for those who don't know what the Skinner box, also known as an operant conditioning chamber, is, they were originally small boxes built to contain a number of preset stimuli and responses meant to assess animal behavior and to experiment in long-term conditioning. For example, a rat may be placed inside a box containing two buttons and a loudspeaker. The rat is conditioned to learn that, when the speaker begins beeping, a horrible stench will be released into the box unless they hit one of the two buttons. After time, it was observed that the rat would immediately hit the button the moment the initial chimes were played, even when the negative stimuli was later removed. It is also worth noting that limited experiments on children were conducted via a crib invented by B.F. Skinner called the air crib, meant to include numerous stimuli and responses geared towards accelerating learning in infants. However, I could not find any reference to similar experiments being conducted on older children. Uh, Streber would have been about seven, nor any record of any such experiments being conducted at the Randolph Air Force Base. However, as it was supposedly a secret pilot program, it's possible the story never reached Google. Regardless, he cites this period as one of incredible stress, which, like other children who underwent more conventional abuse, may have shattered his preconceived expectations of the world, hence leaving him more open to the phenomenon. In support of this idea, the events detailed in his book of Childhood Contact, The Secret School, only began shortly after he was removed from the Skinner Box program. Another factor potentially influencing contact is one's own awareness of, or connection to, their inner self. In this, he notes that both he and Anne were introduced to the works of esotericist G.I. Gurdjieff in 1969, and through the Gurdjieff Foundation, learned a special meditative exercise called sensing. This involved shifting one's awareness to various parts of the body until one achieves total awareness of their physical form, and, as such, becomes able to perceive past it. It is this and other forms of meditative exercises which he believes may draw the visitors to an individual. As one's awareness of their own innerscape increases, their soul glows brighter, and like moths to the proverbial flame, the visitors come. In Druidry, there's a very similar meditation exercise to that called the Light Body Exercise, or at least in Druidry as told by the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. Uh, it's very similar to that, and I do it a lot, and they haven't come to visit me yet. That you know of. 
that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all we know, like they're here all around us. They're just waiting till we're done recording. Then they're going to get us fair. (laughs) But why are they here in the first place? Other than to get Jay. For this, Strieber cites an article published in the April 1997 edition of Science Magazine, written by D.B.H. Cooper and Mark Morris. They attest that to any race advanced enough to cross interstellar space or dimensional boundaries, a species like us would provide only one valuable resource, being the output of our own independent thought. If they can rearrange atoms, no physical materials would interest them, and the idea of taking humans as slave labor or genetic stock wouldn't hold up as if that was all they wanted they could have had it already rather the authors believe that it is our individuality our way of seeing the world which interests them because for any race that has mastered the universe whatever that entails the universe has lost its core surprise once one has knowledge of everything personal growth stops as such streamer theorizes that perhaps what they want from us is to see the world as we do in order to elicit personal growth Growth which is needed is they are not deific benevolent angels, nor are they malicious demons. They, like us, embody a spectrum of ethical and moral configurations. And while they do come as our teachers, that does not mean we should assume that they are getting nothing out of the deal. Which brings us to our first discussion question. Is it about my cowardice? It can be. Do you want it to be? (gasps) No. Okay. Jumping right into the deep end, let's talk about non-physicality. Does Strieber's theory regarding the physical, non-physical nature of the visitors account for the full body of evidence that we have discussed over the course of this show? And do you think that the visitors are physical, non-physical, or somewhere in between? For the full body of evidence of what we've encountered, like, everything? No, because I don't think anything covers everything. Okay, that's fair. I don't think I, t- you know, we, you know, we talk about the kitchen sink phenomenon, the kitchen sink uh, framework of it's like, well, what if it's everything, everywhere, all at once, like that movie I haven't seen, and um, huh. I, so no, I, I don't think it necessarily accounts for everything in terms of Streber's canon. Yes, it, it quite neatly explains the vast majority of what we've encountered is that they they exist in a different, at least in a different form of physicality than we do. I think that that idea helps a lot of the rest of Streber's canon hang together better. Um, in terms of. I don't think the, phys- the visitors are physical. If they are physical, they're not wholly physical. Uh, they can't they 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 can't be. They, they can't be. We see them. We see them going through walls or, and other nonsense. Like we see them changing. We see them changing shape. Uh, and, and that's not even just Streber. I mean, the, God, there's been so many UFO sightings which feature the UFOs splitting apart into multiple copies and then coming back together and remerging. Yeah. You know, stuff that conventional physics really doesn't allow for. So, yeah, I don't I don't think they're I don't. I don't necessarily think they're wholly non-physical because it, even just sticking within the Streber canon, saying they're wholly non-physical also does not hang together completely because they, if they were wholly non-physical, why the hell are they able to do physical things? Like right. leave marks on people's bodies and throw the furniture around. Well, and also, if we remember from his first abduction experiences, 
he was physically sore. He had yeah. physical damage after uh, the December event. Yeah, it, yeah. If they had been, if they had been wholly non-physical, they wouldn't have needed to insert objects into him to do things. Right. Like, and but if they were wholly, if they were wholly physical, how did they even get from wherever they're from to here? And if they were wholly physical, how did they take Whitley from here to another planet? With a million-year-old university in a tan sky. And like you said, like UFOs splitting apart mid-air. Like, that's not necessarily within the Streber canon, but yeah, I think, I don't think it's necessarily that they're in between. I think maybe they have the ability to switch it on and off. Obviously, we have no way of knowing this, but I'm curious. If you had to guess, if it is that they can switch it on and off, is it that they are innately non-physical beings who can take on physical form? Or are they physical beings who can take up, who have learned a way of taking on a non-physical form? I would lean more towards the former that they were that they began that not necessarily their entire species. Asterisks on this wild conjecture. It's Jay's wild theory time. Um, not that maybe at one point their species was wholly physical, but whatever we are encountering now, I believe they start from a point of non-physicality and coalesce into physicality and the reason that i'm saying that is in in the last two streamer books that we've read a new world and breakthrough so much of it made more sense if i cast aside the U the ufo and if i cast aside the alien angle and approached it as this is a poltergeist it started to hang together better and poltergeists are non-physical entities that coalesce into physicality because they need to be when they need to touch, move, or change something. It's just interesting because I mean, also we note in theory, if they they started in non-physicality and becoming physical took effort on their part. Yeah, I mean, more of the phenomenon that's seen throughout all the books we've been reading of Strebers are non-physical in nature. They're you know that like we were talking about earlier, the knocks, the uh, sensations, the visions, um, and some of the things that at first glance seem physical could easily be not. Like, for example, him having visions of them standing by his bedside, that could just be yeah. projecting that image into their brain, into his brain. Yeah, the harder one is like his roommate, you know, that being like, because there was physical interaction, that was the first time that he had touched one and things yeah. like that. Yeah. There becomes harder to... I'm not saying impossible by any means, but harder to say completely non-physical. Oh, yeah. I think I am definitely in the camp of, I mean, they it, regardless of which one they start as, they can be both if they need to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least very clearly based off of Streber's books. And and also when, when, I, when I say cast aside aliens and go, this is a poltergeist, I'm not saying that Streber misdiagnosed what was happening with him. It's just, again, as, as Fordian slash Keel-esque stuff looking at the idea of what other aspects of the of the phenomenon is this behaving most like and mm -hmm. does that help me understand this a little better a lot of this i can understand the motive and kind of the method behind the madness if i am approaching this as as it looks so much of it just looks so similar to poltergeist activity to me and again not calling it a poltergeist but that's what kind of led me to the conclusion of them starting out as non-physical and being able to transition into a physical state because that that seems to be one of the things that poltergeists have over what we would 
call more traditionally ghosts is that if a poltergeist wants to throw something, they can throw something. So in terms of, uh, I guess, the first part of the question here, does the physical, non-physical nature of the visitors account for the full body of evidence that we've discussed over the course of the show? I'm going to agree with Jay and say no. And that's mostly just because nothing accounts for everything. I mean, uh, that's completely fair. You know, um, I, I think that, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but I think that it could. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, I am, I am prepared for this politician's answer. Well, and I, <laughs> funny. Um, I, I say I think it could because ultimately, like, in his body of work of that we've we've looked at he doesn't take he doesn't really he like lightly touches on some some of the aspects of the phenomenon he doesn't actually like actually dive into it a lot of that being like ghosts and and uh your bigfoot and yeah he know. he totally skipped the squatch there's not one yeah. mention of squatch no not in any of the four books that we've read no turns not. out secret school is all about the squatch uh, I will not have our big-footed brethren erased from this conversation. The Squatch is the janitor at the secret school. No, he's better than that. Yeah. That's Dr. Squatch. Not saying that being a janitor is a bad job. I'm just saying for the, 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 the Sasquatch, they could better use his uh, skills. What does, what does Professor Squatch teach? Business, business ethics, actually. I, w- I was going to say woodshop. Yeah, although I don't know if he'd be able to carve up a tree. I was I was gonna say forest ecology in Northern America, animal husbandry. Anyway, dragging us back here, <laughs> which is normally uh, Nick's job, <laughs> but uh, because in my personal view of all of this, because I do believe, uh, you know, so much of this, there's so much evidence of this being connected, and in Strieber's li- li- like, I guess cosmology idea his theory so to speak he talks about consciousness a lot yeah and how consciousness is a driving force of every uh, uh, of all of this and i think uh i i think that's it's pretty it's pretty accurate you know anyway i think that it could account for the vast majority of it because he does kind of start drawing the conclusions of you know, consciousness might be the center of all this. But the one thing that he doesn't seem to get away from throughout even the course of this whole book is the uh, ET hypothesis in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay, he, no matter how much he's like, yeah, they're not physical, but they're very likely not from here either. You know, they're from elsewhere or from space somehow. And I think that that is not necessarily true. Yeah. You know, I don't know one way or the other, and I don't say, you know, because there's, I don't want to say evidence because that's such a loaded term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's uh, decent enough suggestions and things around that say that, that, that there might be a nuts and bolts aspect to it. And Strieber doesn't really believe in the nuts and bolts. He seemed to believe too much in the hard nuts and bolts of it. He definitely does because he talks about it a lot in this book. Which we do have a question centered around that. So I, I won't dive into that anymore uh, because I was gonna. And I'll just say, yes, I think that uh, I think he covers quite a bit. And I think that the not the physical, non-physical nature of it, it I think before he did this, he must have done a deep dive into Keel because he brought Keel up, uh, I think, for the first time in this book. 
first or so. And it definitely hasn't yeah. been a, a lot. I know he's brought up Jacques Vallée before this. Correct. But I never, I, I don't recall uh, Kiel before this. But nonetheless, uh, he brings it up and the whole physical, non-physical thing always makes me think of Kiel because I was very much in his wheelhouse. You know, the phenomenon is like liminal in its, in its nature and everything, yada, yada, yada. But to your next question, do I think the visitors are physical, non-physical, or somewhere in between? Uh, my, the, the honest answer is I don't know, but that's boring, so I'll just keep moving. I'll, I'll go, my, my personal pet theory right now is I think they are non-physical, almost completely. Okay. Um, and that's because I, I think that they might have some ability to project themselves and appear physical and even interact with us. And what it makes me think of, a lot of the interactions that we get from them make me think of, uh, God, this, I, I apologize in advance for people who don't play role-playing games, but this is the best example that I can think of. But you know the spell that you can cast or use uh, to cross the barrier from like twilight or the shadow into the other world okay yes and for listeners at home what rory is describing there uh within the world of darkness set of games there are levels of reality there's our physical world uh there's twilight which is like ghost world it's yeah. it's overlaid with ours uh but it's invisible and then there's the shadow which is like you know the animic the animistic spirit wilds it's where yeah. the ancient spirits of nature live and there are spells in the game Mage the Awakening, which lets you go between them. Yeah. A lot of the interactions make me think of something like that, where they are interacting with our reality, but they aren't necessarily here. They're reaching across. Exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. They're reaching across in some form. And it makes me think very much in like alternate reality or parallel dimensions and things like that. And that they are, and he talks about that quite a bit in here too, that they are somehow interacting with our reality. The question then becomes, how? How are they doing that? Fuck if I know, you know? But I, I, I think that ultimately, whatever reality they're from, I think it is just more that they are connected with the greater consciousness or whatever it is in their non-physical form, and they are interacting with our reality and I think the reason why is because, and he touches on this a little bit, and I think it's because, I think it's because we're, we as humans are unique. We're different. And we're so different from some of these other entities that we've seen uh, the, the, the visitors interact with. Okay? Like the, in communion, he was talking about how he believed that the greys, I think it was the greys, might be more of a hive mind. And that's not the first time that we've heard that kind of theory. We've seen almost, and we almost see that a little bit in the the visual representation, or in like the visuals that were given to us in Trinity with the little greys running around. That always made me think of more of like a hive mind kind well, the, of the reaction. Boys, the boys got the sense of them being like ants. Yeah, exactly. And that so like, and if that's the case, I th I think they'd be fascinated by the fact that one, we're not a hive mind, that we each have our own individual personality, and yet are still somehow connected to the same web that they are. That web being this un this greater uh greater consciousness, whatever that whatever that might be. And I think that's one of the things that makes them so interested with us, because 
that's really the only thing that I, when I'm breaking down everything, as one of the only things that I can see a, a very large difference between us and them is that we are solely unique every single time. I look different than you, and yet all the grays seem to look almost identical to each other. All the Nords seem to look almost identical to each other. We are solely unique. We are the universe bag of cats. It's just chaos and uh, different patterns all the way down. So that's kind of what I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I like your guys' thoughts. Um, I, too, I, I, too, suspect they're mostly non-physical. I obviously don't know for sure. Um, I did wonder if they may exist... This is going to be confusing, but in a physical and non-physical state simultaneously, almost like they themselves are in a state of quantum superposition, and they could choose kind of which part of themselves they're sliding towards. Yeah, I, I had a thought very similar to that, and I, I ended up shrugging it off in my brain because I'm like, I can't rationalize this. I, I actually, so this is going to... can be rationalized in any of this. I Hey, I try. So th this is something that I'm probably going to end up bringing up later as well, but I, I want to share uh, another harebrained theory I had. Um, so it's often been said that like a lot of UFO crashes aren't crashes, they're donations, right? Yes. Uh, and these creatures crash here and then they die. What if them dying, it's not like the, they were fake aliens or something like that. No, no, they're volunteers who came here to die specifically so they could hang around our planet in non-physical form. Basically, these, all the aliens we encounter are ghosts. <laughs> they're the ghosts of the aliens who crashed here and died, specifically so they could do whatever work they're doing with our dead, which is why they often show up with our dead, because they had to get to our part of the spirit world. That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's a wild theory, that's for sure. Yeah. That's fascinating. How hilarious would it be if they didn't know about ghosts before they figured that out? If they're just like, all right. And it's like, all right, Yumulak, you have to crash the ship in their desert, and then you will shed your crude matter and exist as a luminous being to guide them. And he does that, and he pops up, and then there's just like a dead pioneer sitting right next to him is just like, what in tarnation are you? And then they're both screaming, and then it's just like, you're dead! Yes. What are you? I mean, I I often like that image. I love daydreaming about that image of like aliens coming and being like, "What do you want from us? Oh, we don't want anything from you, humans. We're uh. here about the chupacabra. What? Yeah, you're the only planet in the cosmos that has one. Plenty of other planets have humans, though. You're kind of like lice. May yeah. we speak to the representatives of your nighttime brethren? Are are what? Your brethren that are allergic to the sunlight and emerge only in darkness to feed upon you when you are sleeping. Your your night brethren. May we speak to them? Um, I'm sorry. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to say that again for for, for me, please. Uh, I'm I'm uh, 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 vampires. Well, I guess it's time for a holy war. Is that everyone what you get call your them? steaks and your garlic? Whatever you just said isn't real. We have to go return some videotapes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we ready yeah. to keep going? Yeah. Okay. In Chapter 4, Streber takes a turn to investigate one of the most physical elements of the contact experience, implants. As he recounts on a warm May night in 1989, he received a visit from a pair of entities whom resembled a human man and a human woman, who held him to his bed and placed a small, disc-shaped object in his ear before vanishing in a flash of light. Have we considered that this was a, that this was a sorority prank? Uh, I hadn't, but now I have. Thank you. 
Uh, his ear hurt the next day, and he noticed a lump which he immediately wished to remove. Anne, seeing the implant as a gift, advised caution and made him promise to at least wait and see what its purpose was before he pulled a Van Gogh and sliced his ear off. <laughs> this will make me better at art! <laughs> a few short years after receiving his implant, he met Dr. Roger Lear, a medical doctor who had been making waves by removing and investigating supposed implants from UFO contactees. While Anne continued to forbid Strieber from removing his own implant, they still went together to observe the removal of another such device. As they watched, a shard of metal slightly bigger than a pumpkin seed was extracted from a patient's calf muscle. By the mid-1990s, the Strebers had moved to San Antonio, where they connected with Catherine Cook, president of the Mind Science Foundation, who in turn introduced them to Dr. William Mallow, head of material science at the Southwest Research Institute. Connecting Mallow with Lear, they convinced Lear to bring several of his sample implants to Mallow's lab, where they were subjected to an electron microscope. They learned that all the objects appeared to be solid metal, formed of a meteoric nickel-iron composite that was otherwise unremarkable, save for the fact that when the implants were removed from the patients, they were all found to be enclosed in a sac of the patient's own epidermis, akin to a cyst sac made of skin. Furthermore, one of the objects was found to emit a low-level FM radio signal while it was still inside the host, which cut out the moment the implant was removed. Still wanting the implant gone, Strieber eventually connected with Dr. John Lerma, who had no connection to or interest in UFOs, but who was willing to take a look at Strieber's mysterious lump. During a procedure which Strieber claimed to videotape, Dr. Lerma cut open the lump to reveal a small, white, disc-shaped object. Lerma slid his scalpel along it, preparing to remove the implant when, to everyone's astonishment, the object seemed to burrow deeper into Strieber's flesh on its own. The two small fragments that were left on his scalpel were later analyzed, and while one was found to be standard ear cartilage, the other was found to contain crystals of either calcium carbonate or calcium phosphate. Quote, a lab technician, who had part of the fragment that Dr. Lerma had removed, called him and asked if it was a practical joke. Under the microscope, he was seeing proteinaceous material that was adhered to a metallic base. He told Dr. Lerma that, as far as he was concerned, it was a piece of technology. As a quick aside, proteinaceous basically just means of protein or made of protein, so meat. Hmm. But what did the implant do? From 1990 to 2015, it remained largely inert, save for a few episodes where it seemed to activate. During these periods, he would hear a whirring sound, and his ear would turn bright red. It was not until 2015, shortly following Anne's death, that the implant seemed to come online. He soon found he could activate it with a thought, and that, when active, he perceived a narrow slit in the field of vision from his right eye. Through the slit, he could see what appeared to be words flying by at incredible speed in a courier font, as if typed on a typewriter. He also found that if he concentrated, he could pick out a few words here and there, most of which seemed to be associated with whatever he was writing at the time, providing him with connected words to aid in the writing process. He also uncovered another miraculous function of the implant, the creation of synchronicities in response to his requests. As an example, while working on a historical novel regarding the life of Hitler, he tested the implant by asking it to give him information about Hitler's private life, which was not readily known, being the brand of toothpaste that Hitler preferred. The next day, a standard Google search for some reason connected him to Google's German domain and directed him towards a book written by Hitler's valet. 
a book which proved to contain the requested information. These sorts of synchronicities have since become a core element of his writing process, which is interesting as, as far as medical science can tell, the implant is no longer there. In 2019, Strieber was convinced by an unnamed neurologist working for a non-governmental UAP program to undergo a CAT scan. To Strieber's surprise, the object did not appear on the scan. In fact, a simple ball of cartilage now sat in its place. What this means is a mystery to Strieber and to the reader. But regardless, the implant, whatever it is or was, seemed to continue working. And shortly after the scan, he received a visit which told him much about the implant and the nature of the phenomenon he was dealing with. You know, I have a lump of cartilage in my left ear. Yeah? At the, at the top, yeah. Do you have a slit in the field of vision of your right eye? I do not. Can we create one? Probably. With a knife? Probably. Sometime, okay. Sometimes my back molars buzz, and for a couple of seconds, I think I'm picking up radio signals. That was more easily explained when I had braces, but for some reason, they're still doing that. Sometimes I get this weird feeling like a vibration in my upper spine, but that's likely just something weird happening with the giant mass of fused vertebrae that's up there. Yeah, and the metal rods. And the metal rods. So what I'm saying is we should all go to the hospital immediately. Either that, <laughs> or we all need to stand on each other's uh, shoulders to become a large human antenna to summon aliens. I mean, that sounds fun, at least. You know what? Despite my cowardice, yeah, sure. I think Jay should be at the bottom. No, I'll die. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a complaint. It's a statement of fact. During his standard 3 a.m. meditation session, he heard a knock at his bedroom door and opened it to find two men standing outside. He immediately felt drugged and hazy as the men produced a small portable typewriter and told them that it was what they used to generate the words he saw. When he asked how that was possible, it looked like any old typewriter, they explained, quote, that words I see aren't generated outside my mind, but are drawn up from deep in my unconscious. When they are typed, they appear in the slit. Thus, they are drawn from a level of my mind that I cannot reach to the edge of consciousness where I can make use of them. They also informed him that they did not know how it worked, but that it had been developed by a Dr. Radiv. A quick Google search later, and Strieber learned of Dr. Konstantin Radiv, a colleague of Carl Jung, who spent a good chunk of his career studying the EVP phenomenon. His followers claimed that, in the years following his death, Radiv continued to communicate with them via EVP, leading Strieber to realize that at least his implant had more to do with visits from the dead than any non-human intelligences. That is, if there's a difference between the two to begin with, as he is slowly coming to believe that be they alien, dead human, or otherwise, all such visitors are manifestations of consciousness reaching into our physical world. Quote, whatever aspect of it comes into contact with you, so does it all. Best to think of it as a vast field where different sorts of flowers grow, some of them appearing one way, others another way. No matter which way you go, you remain in the field. Which brings us to our second discussion question. So, what do we make of sightings like this, in which our dead appear to be willing co-conspirators with the non-human intelligences, or engaging in their own machinations entirely? Do you think that they could all be varying manifestations of a shared group or agenda? And does Strieber's metaphor of viewing the phenomenon as a field of flowers track with all we have read thus far? Hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm bad with metaphors both in understanding them and um, in creating them for myself. Okay. So, like, the field of flowers thing, 
didn't really track with me, but that just might be because I didn't understand what he was trying to get at. Okay. So, okay. So we've answered one question with Rory didn't get it. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Do I think that uh, they could all be uh, uh, varying manifestations of a shared group or agenda? Not really. Yeah. I think it's all connected to consciousness, but I don't think it's all one thing. The mechanism is shared, but not the entities using it. Exactly. Exactly. Because I believe that I myself am, uh, you know, a spiritual being on the, in, in this world, in this planet, but I am human. And I, but I am connected to the same like source power, source of, it's like the cre- creation source is consciousness. And we are branches from that each of our own whatever society, whatever part of this cosmos that we are, but we're all a part of the same thing. But that doesn't mean we lose what we are, who we are. We aren't all the same still, you know. Uh, On the topic of bad metaphors, it's like the situation I have in my garage. Uh, So when my wife and I got married, we were given obviously wedding gifts and some people were kind enough to give us power tools, uh, you know, for lawn care and such. However, they gave us a bunch of different brands, which means I now have a giant row of different kinds of batteries that do not work with each other, all charging off of the same power strip. So the power strip, the power strip is consciousness, and we are all batteries charging on it. Uh, you're right in the sense of bad metaphors, uh, but it does explain my point. So <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, I... <laughs> And then to to the first part of your like fifteen part question here, uh, what do I what do I th- what do I make of the sightings of our dead appearing to be willing co-conspirators with the non-human intelligences? Um, well, that's just strange to me. But also, if the non-human intelligences are connected to the same power source or this the same thing, consciousness, and if our dead are fully entwined with consciousness at this point. They've shed their, their, their physical body and are now just one with whatever that the universal consciousness is, then it makes sense to me, right? If, that, if the non-humans are also just either in a non-physical form because they are already at that point, maybe they are and maybe what we are seeing is the dead of these others interacting with our world like the ghosts of our, of our dead interact with our world. So the spirit world is... Shared. The spirit world it, or consciousness is shared. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not that they are traveling interstellar distances to get here. It's just that once you're dead, you can go anywhere. Exactly. I, I actually kind of like that theory. So then every alien we interact with is a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. They're I mean, all, by, the, by that theory, yeah. They're all ghosts. Everything's a ghost. I'm going to live by this now and, and believe it irrationally. Yeah, I'm going to do my post-death year abroad on Earth. Um, they, need, uh, they need help. Like, oh my God, have you seen? They need help. So one thing I do want to draw attention to as well on that topic. So if the lands of the dead or our spirit world is the, uncon- is the consciousness, the field of consciousness, it is a, a place of pure awareness and thought, right? Well, Looking at the, what these two mysterious strangers who showed him the typewriter said, they said that the words he, he saw are drawn up from a level of his mind that he cannot reach to the edge of consciousness where he can make use of them. However, they also say uh, that they're the ones doing the typing. 
Right. That part really didn't make sense to me. Well, what if though, what if it is that what they're talking about where it's coming from yourself is like, yeah, because we're all that we're all consciousness. And so all that stuff is also you, but it's also me. Because at that point, we're all the same thing. Yeah. So there's them saying, I'm sending this from the consciousness field is really saying, yeah, it is still in you because maybe again, we go back to the, uh, the, the secret teacher's idea of the innerscape, the inner world. What if that is the other world? That are the, the place of pure cognition, uh, terminus. Ter- um, I don't know other mythological words to use for that. For, for yeah. I uh, mean, a place moksha. where. Uh, moksha, a place moksha. where. Moksha. Okay. A place where all ideas and thoughts are manifest reality. Mm. I'm sure there's one in Druidry. I just don't know. What what comes to my mind is a noon, but that's just another section of the other world. Oh, one other thing I also wanted to note, though, is that we have this weird reference to a technological device being invented by someone who was dead to aid in the communication across the barrier. And I realized that's not the first time that we've encountered that. I was just about to say, well, that's not the first time we've heard that. Because one of Stuart Alexander's spirit guides in uh, Leslie Keene's book, Surviving death. Surviving death, thank you. Um, one of them was a doctor who created a rudimentary voice box out of ectoplasm in order to speak audibly. We also got in Jenny Tyson's spiritual alchemy, the jukebox. Yeah. That's true. And um, there was so much Jenny Tyson in this one specifically. Oh, yeah. It felt, they felt very, he even mentioned Kundalini yeah. in the back half. Yeah, breakthrough in this one. I got lots of I got lots of spiritual alchemy vibes. Well, I mean, that doesn't surprise me because both of them incorporate heavy images from the basic uh, occult initiatory experience. Yep. I mean, it's it's a ba- very basic breakdown of what every spiritual paths initiatory experience tends to be like for people. Especially, well, once you get to the point of you know ascension communion with the true self that stuff not you know sweeping the temple steps to earn your keep yeah (laughs) um so i the 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 field of flowers thing did work for me of i was just like ah yes this makes perfect sense i'm ignoring all the alien flowers and i'm gonna throw myself down among the pagan crocuses (laughs) it's just like leave me alone ufo people and it's just okay it's like, Jay, we're, we're all the same thing. Shh, 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 shh. No. Huh. No, you're not. Um, uh, so that, so I liked that. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. And I feel like it's such a, it's such a gentler, more positive way of describing the phenomenon instead of it's an ever shifting mass of deception and malice that will take any form it desires in order to eat your soul and then Whitley Strieber is like over here we have roses and over here we have black eyed Susans and over here we don't go don't go over here it's nothing but poison ivy (laughs) don't go over here um as for the dead showing up I I kind of I, I I really like Rory's interpretation so I'm going to offer a different one just for contrast so we're not just all agreeing with each other um oh yeah yeah I, I really like yours. <laughs> um, it makes a lot of sense. Wait, we were supposed to be doing that this whole time? I don't know. You two are idiots. I hate everything you've said. You're the one that plays devil's advocate more than anybody outside the show. I do not playing devil's advocate. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm going to punch uh, you in the face. Bring so, it. 
so way back in uh, way back in tra- transformation, not breakthrough, the transformation, it's transformation. That's the second you one. Mean right? Transformation, the breakthrough. Oh my God, Mr. Streber, I have thoughts. Uh-huh. Um, well, now I'm confused. Which book are you talking the about? The second one. Transformation. transformation, the breakthrough. Got yes. it. Or just transformation as subsequent uh, runs of the book were called. Not communion, the transformation. Or transformation that was to- never a byline on communion. Never once. <laughs> Dead it was, people. It was only Dead the second people. book. Dead people. The first and third never changed. <laughs> I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> You're taking crazy pills. <laughs> That's uh, ibuprofen. That was beautiful. Um, <laughs> I want like a spritz bottle to spray you two like you're bad dogs. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so way back in the in the second book of the of this series, I I started to also approach it from the idea of, and again, this this also builds into kind of my my poltergeist framework that I approach this from sometimes uh, of the idea of if these visitations are, what if these visitations are completely self-generated? What if they are not that they're not real? That's not, I'm not, I'm not calling anybody crazy or a liar. It's like, what if these things are drawn up from the inscape by a subconscious desire or by something? Because he said repeatedly that it's like, the visitors are in my life because I want them to be, even if I'm not cognitively aware that that's what I want. They keep coming back despite my fear because I'm calling them. That, if we apply that, just for the sake of this moment and this argument, if we apply that idea to everyone that has encountered these visitors and is seeing the, and is seeing the dead, they're dead, that that would start to make sense of it's just reaching into your own inscape and it's pulling up because the visitors themselves, like the greys or the kobolds or the Nordics might be native denizens of the inscape, or they might just be common masks that get laid over of emanations from the inscape. Us seeing our own dead also fits with that idea of it's just reaching down into our universal unconscious or into our personal unconscious and saying, what is going to comfort you? What is going to, how do we help you stop screaming? Will your grandmother help you stop screaming? Okay, sit tight. I can go get her. Like, I can, this is all coming from you, buddy. Like, I can conjure up anything that you're going to need. So, I know, Jay, this is an idea that you're not fond of, and for good reason. I understand why, but um, thinking back on something that we've, enc- a, a concept that we've encountered several times, where uh, if reincarnation is real, then uh, there are some who believe that everything that happens to us in this life was agreed upon beforehand, right? That we yep. we kind of agreed on what challenges we would face so that we because we knew that's what we needed to grow yeah. in the larger cosmic soul sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what if you know he he subcon- What if you know he's saying I what I subconsciously wanted them? What if that is really the indicator of contact is? Did you did you sign up for the contact package before you came to this earth? And maybe that's why so many people can go through life and never encounter anything 
because they didn't sign up for the package. They're here for the golf and blowjobs package. Oh, God, reality is Westworld. Uh, no. And that that would track. Like, I can... And and I will I, I will put a caveat of just like that that particular statement of of people sign up for the trials they face on Earth. I on Earth I don't like you said I don't like that. I'm not fond of it. I have seen versions of it that get tempered a little bit where people are like no 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 no. People are talking about like and again I still don't like this. People are talking about like being born with disabilities. No one ever signs up to experience racism. Racism is a human evil like done through other people's free will. So I've, I've seen versions of it that I can swallow slightly more easily, but it's still very against my worldview. Yeah, I, I have. And I know that we're not talking about this specifically right now, but I, I can't help but, like, think about, like, if that's the case, like, who signs up to be, you know, a stillborn? Yeah. Who signs up to be the child that gets leukemia and dies at age 10? Or who signs right. up to be the mother that gives birth to a stillborn. Right. Like, I just, I don't, I can't see the win in that scenario in any life ever. And why, it, that, to me, that is like the idea of somebody saying, well, everything happens for a reason. Right. You know, and, or, you know, God always has a plan because, you know, what, whatever. And no, you know, sometimes shit just sucks. Well, yeah, I mean, I would, the only argument, and again, this is playing devil's advocate, um, the, the only argument I could see uh, kind of a response to that would be, ultimately, it doesn't make sense to us here. Yeah. In the midst of the suffering, it, it may be to the thing that we are once we're in our true self and not this, you know, soft, shitty body. Um, once we're there, it makes sense because we can see kind of the larger picture. Uh, very similar to how, I don't know, like sometimes when I was painting models, I would realize, uh, I would, you know, I would realize that something got messed up and I needed to say, remove a limb to reposition it. And I was going to mess up the paint and I was going to redo it. And for the model, very traumatizing, but I could see that it over the course of time was going to improve the overall final product in this metaphor, the final product being, uh, a perfected soul. Yeah. An ascended soul, and I and I and I see that point, and I guess the biggest part for me is I just struggle to wrap my I, I struggle I struggle to wrap my mind around why anybody would want to put us put themselves put another through that kind of suffering. Oh, absolutely. I I I mean, for example, I mean, I know this is this pales in comparison to some of the examples you just said, but uh. You know, I could have probably done without some of the suffering from my car no, accident. Absolutely, same with me. Like I, if I, if I find out that 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 that's true, and you know, Universal Rory decided to put me through all of these, I'm gonna kick my own ass. Like I, I, I now am really looking forward to in the afterlife, just seeing you over in the corner beating the shit out of yourself. It's gonna happen if that turns out to be true. So <laughs> what are you doing? I'm, I'm kicking, kicking my, my ass. ass. Do you mind? Thank you, Jim Carrey. Yeah, now we've dropped a 20, 30-year-old movie reference. Jay, what were you saying? Uh, yeah, and, and like that that whole thing about I, I also cannot fully wrap my head around that idea. And that was why this that was actually a very good transition back into my back into my point of that is why I struggle so much with Stre with Streber's interpretation of the phenomenon, is because 
He keeps saying, what they're doing to me is okay. They have a right. All of this suffering is fine and good in the end. And I reject that so violently and flatly that it was very difficult for me to approach this with any amount of grace and rationality. And the way that I made that make sense is to go, okay, okay, isolate the one part of this that is driving you the most insane. And that is the visitor saying, we do have a right. In what circumstances would that statement hang together? In what statement would that, in what, in what circumstances would that statement track mm. and not be an assertion of unspeakable evil? Um, and that is if they are somehow self, if these experiences are, genera- are self-generated, are called upon, are wished for. And that's an angle that I hadn't considered before of in, in between reincarnations just going like, yeah, I'd like to be productively tormented by aliens this time around. Uh, I don't want, no, I don't, no, I don't want the, the pointless torture package. I want the enlight, I want the torture then enlightenment package. Well, that costs more. Why the fuck does it cost money? Does it, we don't have money here. Yeah, I'm messing with you. Go, go get bored. Yeah, huh. well, no, no, no. I know, I know what you want. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the paperwork. Again, I, I, I've said this multiple times on the show. If I die, get to the afterlife, and um, immediately I'm told I got to get a job for spirit capitalism, I am going to be so pissed. I'm going oh, to yeah. eat the Grim Reaper like he's a, like a, a well-done steak. Like, can I go to super heaven now where there is none of that? Yeah, like, sorry, I, I, uh, I, I fled this life, you know, either, you know, in one way or the other to get away from capitalism. Okay, maybe not on purpose. That totally makes it sound like you killed yourself, by the way. (laughs) I know. That's why I tacked on the maybe not on purpose, but... Fun fact, Mormons do do have a super heaven. There are three layers of heaven, and each one's better than the last uh, in Mormonism. Yeah, there's uh there's like uh there's like a C tier heaven that you can go to if you're not the bestest Mormon. And then there's <laughs> This there's... is economy heaven. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's economy heaven. Um uh so but uh, yeah, going back to the the original point of it just them working with the dead to me makes almost makes the most sense of the idea of it, it's it's coming from us. We're calling it up from the inscape or down from the stars or whatever and the the dead get brought our dead get brought along almost as a tool to continue facilitating whatever work needs to be done in those circumstances yeah yeah sure i, I yeah i think these are all uh, valid points and once again we have no way of knowing which one's correct if god any. no it would also be hilarious if, like we discussed in uh, in the previous question if it's just like the aliens didn't know about ghosts and then it's just like why do you have the ghost of my favorite uncle? Um, yeah, he's haunting us. What? Yeah, uh, he was haunting your house, and then he decided we were being mean to you, so uh, he moved on to our ship, and um, that's why we came and got you again. Help us. Mm-hmm. Right, it, ter- it turns out that becoming a ghost, like, for example, like some of them did crash and died, and now they're ghosts here, but that only happens here. Like, the planet is a soul trap, and they keep coming here, to try to save their the imprisoned souls of those who crashed before, uh, and then they crash and die, and more of them get trapped here in this never-ending cycle, hence ramping up the contact that we've seen increasing decade by decade. And we still don't have an explanation for the fucking cardboard suit. 
I just think you want to look snazzy. It's all business, Whitley. <laughs> <laughs> Are we ready for section three? Yeah. God, yes. We're moving at this through amazing clip. Thank you, Nick. I try. A few short weeks later, in July of 2019, Strieber was invited to visit the All Nations Gathering Center on the Lakota Sioux Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, where he was to give a talk on his book, The Afterlife Revolution. The morning he arrived, he soon found he kept seeing snippets of movement whenever he closed his eyes. These flickers soon turned to images of shadowy trees and rolling hills, which filled him with an intense sense of both homecoming and homesickness. Quote, It wasn't as if I was in two places at once, but rather looking out the windows of my heart into two worlds that have been locked forever in a secret embrace and seeing that wonderful, sweet thing for the first time. The world he saw was like ours, but a little darker. Literally, it appeared to exist in perpetual twilight and was less developed. Ungraded dirt roads carved winding paths through dense forests, and he got the sense that it was a world either not as technologically developed as our own or one in which naturalist philosophies were the way of life. He spent the weekend exploring this other, shadow reality, which he felt was overlapped with or adjacent to our physical reality, a reality which may be the home turf of the visitors, or perhaps the land of the dead, or both. Exploring this idea a little, he notes that the existence of a sort of mirror universe to our own would solve many of the hard problems currently faced both in paranormal studies as well as in conventional physics. Perhaps the anomalous abilities we see in UFO craft is merely witnesses seeing them crossing back and forth from this mirror universe. Likewise, cryptids, visions of extinct animals, and other such anomalous sightings may be either glimpses into that world or moments when the two worlds run up close to each other. Such a reality has even been theorized by our advanced physics, which suggests the existence of a mirror universe as a possible answer to the mysterious absence of dark matter. Quote, In addition, and perhaps most tellingly, the most developed mirror models indicate that there must be five mirror particles for every particle in our universe. This is precisely the same ratio given by our measurements of how much dark matter must exist. It would seem possible, then, that dark matter, which we know must exist but cannot seem to find despite years of trying, might actually be this mirror universe. Shortly after returning from the reservation, Strieber began dreaming of other parallel realities, always from the point of view of the version of himself that lived there. In some, Anne was still alive. In others, he was spending time with a grandson who would not be born in our universe for a few more years. These included the occasional waking dream of his house as it would be in those other dimensions including one in which strange trees grew in planters in his living room, and another in which SETI regularly broadcast alien television shows that had been picked up from deep space. He then analyzes these maybe encounters with other worlds in light of something Anne told him shortly following a near-death experience in 2004, brought on by a severe brain hemorrhage. Quote, Anne felt that there was a sort of breathing between this and another universe, and that when we died here, our consciousness was transferred to another version of ourselves there. In other words, our consciousness, or soul, is the connective tissue binding together disparate fragments of the self scattered across the multiverse. In this way, Strieber introduces the idea of a sort of cosmic quantum immortality, just that we may also have the ability to shift our point of reference between these selves before physically dying. Which introduces another troubling element to the equation free will. 
We like to believe that we are in total control of our lives, but if this is true, the person we think of as our self is merely a fragment of the whole, our movements dictated by our unseen soul. Taking a quick aside into the materials discussed in the afterlife revolution, I feel it is important here to define what Strieber sees as the difference between the soul and the ego. The ego is the I in our minds. It is the thing that has ambitions, dreams, and subjective beliefs which help define itself within the world. It is, as Strieber puts it, our primary social tool, and it is through the ego that the soul learns. But the ego is not the true self. As Anne reportedly told Strieber after her death, quote, I will always be Anne for you, Witty, but I am also more. The ego then is seen as a sort of disposable mask, one part of a greater tapestry of experience and consciousness that is the true self. This understanding is critical if we are to understand what we think of as ontological shock. The ego reacts to the presence of the visitors as it does because it understands on some deep level that to deal with the reality of their existence is to deal with its own eventual end. It is only by becoming cognizant of our souls, and as such coming to understand that the destruction of the I is not oblivion, that we can begin to move past the instinctual fear we feel when staring into the glossy black eyes of a gray or the luminous gaze of the dead. Which is part of the reason our visitors, regardless of what they are, must be so careful in contacting us, because they arrive bringing with them not only knowledge of the certainty of death, but a clear vision of when and how it will come. As Anne explained from beyond the grave, for those on her side, which may include the non-human visitors, the future, well not written, is much clearer, and certain eventualities, such as death, are the clearest. As Strieber writes, quote, Once you know the moment of your death, you also know everything that transpires between. We are not here to move through life on the grim rails of future knowledge, but to experience events spontaneously. Even if they are pre-planned, which for all I know they may be, our purpose here is to be surprised and to gain self-knowledge by observing the way we react to what life presents us. In other words, it is the surprise that the visitors are after. Now, hearkening back to some of the earlier books, Strieber suspects that the visitors come from outside time and hence are given a view of all moments that have come and will come, and because of this, they live in a state of immense knowledge but emotional shallowness. It is through us, he believes, that they seek to achieve personal growth by piggybacking on our perception of reality. Quote, I get knowledge from them, my life becomes richer. They get relief from me. Yes, it's a game. And just as Shakespeare said, this is the theater and we are the players. He didn't think about the audience, though. They are the audience. And when they have a seat in the theater of our lives, they enjoy the great pleasure of being alive again. Now, I want to pause here to point out some of the contradictions which should be evident by this point. For example, upon death, do we become non-physical like the visitors and our ghosts? Or do we shunt our consciousness into another physical reality? And what about reincarnation, which at various points Streber implied to be real? Are the visitors physical beings at all? And if not, why would they be angry when their illusion of form is broken? Ultimately, neither I nor Streber have the answers. And as he would say, we must learn to live with that ambiguity. As we move forward into the increasingly esoteric ideas presented in this book, it'll be important to remember that everything detailed herein are simply his ideas of what his experiences may imply. As such, there'll be plenty of gray areas, contradictions, and outright mysteries, but then again, that may be part of the fun. Which brings us to our third discussion question. 
So let's talk about this year's cultural zeitgeist, the multiverse, specifically in regards to the dead. If Streber is correct, the soul is the nexus between our various selves, and upon death, our consciousness shifts its awareness to one of the other shards. If true, then how do we rectify that with the notion that our dead, like Anne and some other visitors, seem to exist in an energetic body? If they died, why didn't they pop to another universe, and how could they return to cause the haunting effects described in both ghost and UFO literature? If the soul is immaterial, that means that... Wouldn't that track, then, that the soul is limitless? That it that it's... Because he, he, also, he also talks about this in terms of the Golden City, of the ambiguous has no borders, that kind of thing. It's like... So I can, while it is contradictory and it kind of makes my head hurt, again, again, stepping into his narrative framework and attempting to help and attempting to make it hang together, at least for us, if the soul is immaterial and eternal and can therefore be seen as limitless, maybe it can be in many, many places at once. Maybe also... If the visitors exist outside of time, then yeah, I I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe chunks of the consciousness can return to an earlier save point. I don't know. I I think you actually were on to yeah an interesting thought here when you said like outside of time. So remember, think like the way I was thinking about this, just as like a thought, is maybe once we leave this physical body we then become you know like we become one with the the one well let's just call it the universe one with the universe and therefore we live outside of time if we live outside of time that means that i can in my non-physical body interact with you who may be living both in the past and the future because time is irrelevant to me at this yeah. point i am outside of time it'd be like inter yeah. you'd be interacting with jay and then you'd walk to the next room and interact with Jay 50 years later. Exactly. Exactly. for you, moving through time would be walking from one room to another. Exactly. And that's kind of how I was uh, looking at it, was I think time is the key component to being able to make a theory like this even make sense. And it's not that... It's time is limiting to it. You know, be, so the only... Almost, it's like the only explanation is that when we're outside of this this form, we're outside of time. Ironically, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off and take over your question, but I just had a thought, so I want to get... I just watched a TikTok video the other day. Okay, we're citing TikTok. We have hit the top. No, no, I'm not citing it. I'm just saying this sparked thoughts in my brain. And the, the TikTok said, if a shadow is a two-dimensional uh, reflection of us, how do we know that we're not a three-dimensional reflection of our fourth-dimensional self? Okay? Interesting thought, right? Right. But the fourth dimension is time. So how do, you know, so how do we, like, how are we a reflection, we're, how are we a reflection of our fourth-dimensional self if the fourth dimension is time? I mean, what if, I mean, in that metaphor, though, imagine, think when, you, when you're uh, out at night and you get hit by multiple street lamps at the same time, you have multiple shadows, what if the fourth dimensional self has a different shadow for each moment in time? What if our soul is our fourth dimensional self? Yeah. 
as you know, that's kind of the point that I was uh, that I was trying to trying to circle my way into. It's like our soul that we talk about. We 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 all feel that that like that the fire of it inside of us. What if that is just our fourth dimensional self? And because fourth dimension again, it's time. Our soul would therefore live outside of that time, and it can interact here, there, the other, you know, anywhere in time. And we can't become fully one with our soul until we're outside of this cocoon. Interesting. Um, the the other idea of it's just like, well, then, of the other aspect of the question of like, well, then, how do hauntings make sense? Of I've talked about this several times that, you know, we never. Obviously, there's no scientific consensus on ghosts, but the vast majority of people that I've talked to that, like me, prefer that angle of the phenomenon over most others have come to a community consensus of there are different levels of hauntings. So I've I've brought up the idea before of there are hauntings that are discarnate spirits that think and act that 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 make choices and have concrete agency and then there are hauntings that are just scars just echoes just things stuck on a loop within Streber's viewpoint with the idea of this this version of quantum immortality of constantly just shunting to the next universe until you've collected all the deaths and can ascend into the final dimension yeah um Perhaps, perhaps there are simply some scars that are more sophisticated than others. Perhaps there is no discarnate spirit causing a haunting. Perhaps there are just because like, to, to bring in yet another thing, you know, there's that that quest in Cyberpunk where it turns out that the coffee vending machine is not sentient. It just has a very good conversation algorithm. It's possible that we're also being fooled by these incredibly elaborate ghosts that are acting as if they have agency. Maybe they fucking don't. Maybe it is just a particularly sophisticated scar left behind after that person steps into the next reality. You know, it's an inter- that's an yeah. interesting idea. It is, and it also makes me think another possibility is also what if... So we have this, in Streber's cosmology, we have this fundamental schism between the ego and the self. Yes. And that, for the record, that is not unique to Streber. That, that is, uh, crops up a lot, especially in Eastern mysticism, the separation of who you think you are, your personality, and your true self. Mm-hmm. What if ghosts are egos that refuse to be dissolved? Like, uh, the, the I in your brain was too powerfully attached to existing, and so when you tried to take that mask off, it said, fuck you, and ran off. Uh-huh. I could also absolutely buy that. I could could see that, yeah. I could also, again, going back to my current favorite thing of poltergeist, it's entirely possible that some of those those things are what we would call discarnate spirits with with thought, but like in, instead of just being the, it could, you could interpret this as it being the, the, the ego that broke away because it didn't want to dissolve. It could just be, you also leave behind your anger. You leave behind your fear. You leave behind your codependency on your partner or your dog or whatever. And that that aspect of the ego or the ego itself, like you said, is is what gets left here. It's also, you know, again, no scientific consensus, but community consensus is most of the time when you get a ghost, it's because they didn't want to deal with whatever was coming next. Mm-hmm. Like... 
it's possible that it's like, all right, buddy, time to get shunted to your next reality on the spectrum. Nuh-uh. What do you mean, nuh-uh? This is what happens. No, I'm staying here. I, I remember what package I signed up for. It's like, uh, like, almost like ghosts are the left behind emotional and even, you know, I, I guess emotional resonance of your individuality that you couldn't shed of yourself, like when you're passing through to that other part. So you're still, you're left a bit behind. Or it's, Maybe. It's the refusal to evolve into the next stage of who you are. And like, like yeah, again, you're, like you said, you're just, just clinging to this old idea of who you were because you're scared to evolve. Mm-hmm. And it's, we, we see that just along our own lives yeah. of the, you know, the, that old joke about, about the person who's turned 29 five years in a row now because yeah. they don't want to admit they're 30. My birth mom always just said 29 and pushing it all and probably still says that. Probably, even though she is visibly not 29. Um, yeah. So, so I, I do think that ghosts can still work in this cosmology. It's just, again, we have to, these things do, to, I think, to me, make more sense if you embrace the idea of maybe humans are inherently fractal and infinitely more complicated than we ever want to admit that we are, and to the point where maybe we can exist in seven different states at once. Well, I mean, in theory, that is exactly what Strieber's uh, cosmology endorses because the soul would be kind of, again, it'd be the connective tissue between these disparate selves. I kind of was thinking of it like an amoeba with a bunch of tendrils going off of it, and each one yeah. had a little person mask on the end of it. It's like, this is, you know, this is this Nick, and over here we have Nick if he was born without feet. And let's see all the challenges that will cause. And maybe that's what maybe that's what it is of like of accepting the uh, accepting this as as truth for a while of maybe it's not maybe we're not just going to infinitely get shunted through universes. Maybe there's a set or random number of ones of like you said of just like time to be the Nick without feet and see what you learn from that life. Even though being born without feet is a hardship, not a lesson, but whatever. Um, Maybe I just really needed to learn how to live your life when those boots aren't made for walking. Like that joke I made about like you have to Pokemon collect all the deaths of yeah. its. Maybe, maybe that is the the celestial ladder to ascension. Is just the thirty three lives that we have to that we have to live in different universes before we're fully ready to to rejoin with true reality what if reincarnation is just that you failed the test of that life so you have to do it again would you like another set of universes so that maybe you don't stab so many people this time i mean isn't that like the whole like you have to do it again reincarnation thing that's true to a lot of philosophies because you failed this life so you're going back into the cycle to do it again you either become an ascended master or you reincarnate, or in Strieber's cosmology, it would be, because we have from previous books, remember this idea that if you die with having done too much evil, your soul falls. Yeah. And I have something I want to comment on that a little later on. Um, But regardless, I mean, it seems like, so then in that cosmology is, all right, well, you you, you conducted too much evil in this life, and it was like an infection spread up from that ego into your soul, and it destroyed it. 
or your soul actually learned enough to become a rainbow body and has escaped this cycle. Because uh, one thing that came of an afterlife revolution is Anne repeatedly said, I have left this world and shall not return this time. Because hmm. um, she was ascended. She was a rainbow bodied ascended master. Well, and then, uh, and then the third option would be, you're still not there, put you back in the oven. Yeah. Now, I did have one other idea of another possible way to rectify this. Um, what if it is, you know, exactly what he said, it's quantum immortality. We keep being, having our consciousness shunted to another parallel reality whenever we would die. What if the dead, the visitors, the other are in their physical world? The afterlife is a physical place. But once you're there, you have the knowledge of what your true nature is, and they be- and they can project their non-physical self back into our reality. So all the non-physicality we see around the dead, around around aliens, um, is really just because they're not actually here. They're projecting an avatar here. Mm. So, like a simulation, I suppose. God damn it. Okay. Are we ready to keep going? Or do people want to say something about that? No, I think I'm good. Throughout this book, Strieber has referred to non-human intelligences, dead humans, some normal humans, and other types of entities under the broad umbrella of visitors, likely due to his suspicion that they either all come from the same place or at least have some relation to each other. However, over the next two chapters, Strieber shifts his focus to discuss the non-human visitors specifically, being the entities we would traditionally call aliens. Creatures which, quote, cannot experience surprise. Their lives, trapped in what amounts to an eternal present, are absent all the excitement, wonder, and beauty, all the pain and terror, all the living that defines the human experience. And it is that human experience which they want, according to Strieber, to ride, quite literally, within us to see and experience the world as we do, and in turn, to share some of their vast knowledge to help us prevent the ecological catastrophe that Strieber has been predicting since communion. This partnership, which many will view as possession, is the true purpose of the communion process, a coming together of two wildly different perspectives to form a stronger third. A perspective which, Strieber believes, will be necessary for both sides of the partnership to grow and become better because they are just as flawed as we are. And what is more, they are predators of a sort, though they don't seek flesh or blood for their sustenance, but souls. Over the course of his time with them, Strieber has come to believe that the entities do sometimes take and possibly consume parts of or entire souls, that this predatory instinct runs deep within them, just as our own murderous habits sometimes overrule our reason. As such, we shouldn't think of them as malicious, more animals who sometimes cannot resist their base nature. Now, that is not to say we are helpless prey. In Strieber's experience, all that is required is a strong soul to prevent yourself from ending up on the menu. This is because they can only take parts of the soul that have been ignored or left to atrophy due to our cultural blindness to our own spiritual nature. And a strong soul only requires that you act with humility, compassion, and that you love and accept yourself warts and all. Quote, if my experience is any example, what you will be once you really get to know yourself is understanding. Your shame, your dread of failure, your imperfections, all that stuff that you don't want to face will gather together in a great flood of acceptance and you will be free. Still the same, but free. 
And then deepen your life and deepen yourself, you will start trying to repair what you can of the hurt you have brought into the world. This, he believes, is the path to truly understanding objective love, a concept he learned from Anne via his after-death communications with her, meaning love for the totality of existence rather than subjective love, which focuses on individual people, places, and concepts. And it is the state in which our souls exist should we end our lives with a soul strong enough not to fall to ruin under the weight of our burdens and crimes. Burdens and crimes which conveniently are among the things the others wish to experience through us. Which introduces the primary schism in Strieber's cosmology between the non-human visitors and the dead human visitors. The dead, for the most part, want us to learn to strengthen our souls and to set aside our burdens so we may join them as part of the beautiful tapestry of souls. But the non-humans, well, they want to live a little, regardless of the damages it may cause. Quote, it is said for good reason that the devil is a tempter, and I have had them drawing me towards all sorts of angers, lusts, and so forth, simply because it was exciting. In the real world, though, the same entity, who was a demon and tempted me in ways that would have left me with regrets that would impede my eventual ascension, would also glow with excitement when I was feeling love. Strieber then breaks down some of the reasons he came to these conclusions, beginning with the Pyramid Text, an ancient Egyptian treatise on the nature of the soul found carved in the walls of the Pyramid of Unus. In the text, the authors describe the human soul as three parts, Ka, the non-physical double, which he suspects is the form adopted during the out-of-body experience, Ba, the part of us able to travel between the living and the dead, and Ak, the part which survives death and which cannot carry evil leaving all that behind in the Ka. And it is through the spine, depicted in the text as a serpent connected to seven smaller serpents or energy centers, analogous to our concept of chakras, which binds the soul to the body. An idea which takes on troubling connotations when we consider that many of the cattle mutilations reported in conjunction with UFO activity involve the removal of the cow's spine. As Strieber speculates, this could be a way, if one had the ability to perceive and interact with a soul, of capturing it for later consumption. Something which, if certain stories of human mutilations are to be believed, may have even happened to some of us. However, doesn't this fly in the face of the peace-loving teachers Strieber has presented the visitors as throughout his books? No, rather than a sign of evil, Strieber argues that this may simply be nature being its often brutal self. Quote, when a shark devours an innocent swimmer, it is terrible, but it isn't evil. It's just nature being nature. The same thing holds true when a person is attacked in the night, their spine extracted, and their energetic body captured. It's just nature being nature. As an aside, though, this was a point I personally struggled with, as our concept of evil in the Western world is often rooted in knowledge of what one is doing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, a shark unaware of the existential dimensions of death is only thinking of its next meal. But if the visitors are truly aware of the nature of souls in the universe and perform these soul extractions anyway, that smacks to me as an act of incredible evil. But what do I know? No, I, uh, I also struggled with that point because of the exact same thought process. It's like we can make an excuse for an animal that doesn't know any better, but if these are supposed to be entities of our level or above, they know better. Well, and also... It kind of, it seemed like he couldn't decide which was a better explanation of their behavior. This, or in my opinion, the much more likely one, which he brings up at other points in the book, that 
again, they embody a wide ethical and moral spectrum just like we do, and some of them are gonna be assholes. I would swallow that so much more easily when, like you said, this this whole idea of like, well, sometimes they just eat our souls or steal our spines and we just have to put up with it. And it's like, well, then. Whitley, when they come offering their strange enlightenment, I will spit upon all they offer me. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it kind of comes back to it's like, I don't care if, if they're going to potentially eat my immortal soul, which if he's right, is the true me, the eternal part of me. Fuck him. I'm going to beat him to death with a brick. Exa- exactly. I am diving behind Apollo and Morrigan. <laughs> yeah. From there, Strieber turns to analyze some of the darker elements of the contact experience in the hopes of drawing some kind of understanding about why the visitors sometimes come bearing horrors instead of gifts. In this, he cites a survey conducted by astronaut Edgar Mitchell's Foundation for the Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Experiences, a.k.a. the Free Foundation. What they found from over 5,000 respondents claiming visitor contact was that most negative experiences occurred at the beginning of the contactees' experiences with the visitors, and that subsequent encounters became more positive over time. This aligns well with Strieber's experiences, as we begin with a soul-rending scene of abduction and violation and communion, and ended with a loving piggyback ride and breakthrough. This they chalked up to ontological shock, which is also known as initiatory illness, a syndrome often reported among practitioners of shamanic traditions where, upon the initiate's first encounter with the spirit world, they often grow incredibly psychologically and physically distressed. The horror, we are to understand, is simply the result of one's fundamental reality being forcibly changed. These same symptoms have also been seen in those who undergo near-death experiences, and given the rising numbers of apparent contact cases and NDEs reported to the Free Foundation, Strieber speculates that we may be in the midst of a species-wide initiatory process to uplift us to some undreamed height. He also notes that, according to the letters he receives and the Free Foundation's findings, full abduction events have been on the decline since they spiked in the 1980s, which he attributes to their evolving understanding of us. Perhaps, at first, they truly saw us as just another Earth animal, and only over time came to find any real value in our willing participation. However, one should not make the mistake of assuming all negative interactions are the result of misperceptions. If they are as diverse as we are, surely some visitors are madmen, or murderers, or worse, who may come bearing gifts of a different nature. Which is when we encounter the Smoking Man. While still living at the cabin in upstate New York, both Strieber and Anne repeatedly saw a small, strange man standing in the woods behind their house. He was the size of a child, but otherwise appeared to be a normal man when viewed at a distance. His nickname came from the fact that he was never seen without a lit cigarette on his lips. They saw the man on occasion until they lost the cabin and moved to San Antonio, where, a few short months later, the smoking man reappeared standing in the center of their cul-de-sac, staring at Streber as he stepped out onto the porch. Unlike the other visitors he had encountered, Streber sensed no love or care from this entity. Rather, he felt as if the man was somehow poking around inside his head in a deeply invasive, nearly sexual way, which Streber equated to mental rape. And, more troubling, the man's search through Streber's brain revealed elements of himself which had long remained hidden to Streber, 
most notably homoerotic and masochistic desires he had long denied. Mr. Strieber, I have thoughts. <laughs> I, I know. He fled, and soon after, Strieber began seeing the man accompanied by two others, walking about town doing their business. And while they were entirely physical, they seemed to be able to directly control the minds of those around them. In one instance, Strieber ran into them at the grocery store, where they filled several bags with goods and then walked out without paying in the full sight of the employees, who for their part stood stock still, staring sightlessly forward until the men left. Shortly after this incident, Strieber discovered that the strange men were squatting in another apartment in the building behind the Striebers. Strieber told the complex manager and managed to get the men evicted from their lives. It seems, even with the powers of mind control at your command, nobody rides for free. Analyzing these events, Strieber comes to the conclusion that what we perceive as negative experiences may be just another opportunity to strengthen our souls. Regarding the elements of his own psyche, which the smoking man unveiled, he writes, quote, This is what, in so much human mystical tradition, contact with the dark side entails. It takes you into places in yourself that you otherwise would never go. But once you are there, you find your own darkness and its mystery and the thrill of it. In my case, when he entered me the way he did, I experienced homoerotic pleasure. I was afraid of him and the part of me he could connect with, and I drove him off. But that is in me too, just as is the erotic masochism I explored in pain, which you may remember is the short story he wrote during his depressive episode in Communion. In other words, encountering darkness has a tendency of shedding light on the parts of ourselves that we refuse most strongly. Yet, there is also the danger of falling to that darkness. To build a strong soul, we must fully understand ourselves, but not become slaves to any single aspect of that self. In this way, even the most negative of visitor experiences are, ultimately, simply another method of fostering the kind of intensive introspection the visitors seem to want from us. So yes, dealing with the visitors is dangerous. They can unveil parts of the self we don't wish to know, and they may even be able to remove, trap, or consume our very souls. Yet, dealing with them is also an informed gamble. Most that we know of survive their encounters and come away with a richer understanding of themselves, the universe, and everything. It is up to each of us to decide if that is worth the risk. Which brings us to our fourth discussion question. In light of Strieber's encounters with the Smoking Man, I want to take a step back to discuss darkness or danger or evil as it appears in other types of paranormal incidents. Could the stories we have heard of malicious hauntings, demonic possession, and sinister cryptids be serving a similar purpose to what the Smoking Man did for Strieber? And can you think of any specific examples from the other books we've covered? Ah, Nick, you, you, you asked the single most troubling question in all of theology. And that is the purpose of evil. Um, yay! Ah, uh, Nick, Nick, <laughs> it's called it, it, it's it's called theodicy. It's it's literal theodicy. It's literally an entire branch of study. Wait, really? You can be an expert in evil? Not an e you you can be a theologian who specializes in the discussion of the purpose or nature of evil. Fuck that! I want to be a master of evil. I. T well, then you have to you know then you'd be on the same level of like Hitler. Oh, I don't want that. All right, I'll get you, I'll, I'll, I'll make some calls, I'll get you enrolled in the local seminary, and you'll begin training as a priest, and then we'll put you on the PhD in theology track. Do you still want to do this? I think I'm just going to print out a fake certificate that says I'm a master of evil. 
okay, you can do that. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it's what most doctors do. So, just just blow past that's it. That's not true. It's not so, true. Don't listen to me. The and and in terms of that, I in real life and in academics, I tend to favor the interpretation of the rabbi Harold Kushner who wrote uh when bad things happen to good people, as well as several books on uh, on the story of Job, which is essentially he interprets the idea of like evil does not have a purpose. Evil sort of just exists in the cracks that good cannot fill in of essentially he he is a Jewish rabbi. He is a Jewish theologian. And his interpretation is he he believes that he believes essentially that God is not all powerful and that is the explanation for evil is that evil and randomness and all of these horrible hardships are just evidence that whatever, whatever intelligence divine sits above all of us just is not all powerful and cannot protect us from everything. And that that is the interpretation that I like, like I said, both academically in my personal theology. And I think it can I think it can track here, too, of I feel like in some ways it may be dangerous or a disservice to us to ascribe purpose to evil and hardship in every single case. Um, seeking finding goodness out of hardship is, of course, very, very healing for some people. But I feel like we also we need to always leave room for the idea of sometimes other sapient beings are shitty or they're in pain in a way we can't understand that we can't heal and they're going to lash out or they're just they're just not even going to lash out. They're going to do inconsiderate, cruel things because because they can, because they want to, because nobody got there in time to stop them. So I so I, I I'm relu- when when there are evil visitations or dark or scary visitations, I, I am reluctant to try and subscribe purpose to that or make it part of the grander design just because I refuse to ever approach. I I, re, I refuse to engage with a rhetoric that says people need to be grateful for suffering. Yeah. Well, which actually, uh, you know, harkens back to our earlier conversation about choosing your hardships in this world. Yeah. What I, actually something that uh, you hit upon there made me think. So, the mere existence of evil, especially evil that in Strieber's cosmology is powerful enough that your soul is rendered apart upon upon death. Yeah. In theory, because you likely perpetuated those evils on other people. Yeah. They would have had to agree to that ahead of time if we do agree to everything, which means you agreed to do it knowing your soul would be destroyed. So that doesn't quite make sense. Yep. That's where the rhetoric starts to fall apart for me. Yeah. Is okay. Uh, I'm, I'm getting it now. Yeah. Of ba- yeah. Of basically, that's why that rhetoric falls apart for me. Of like I said earlier, of like who the hell would sign up to be a victim of racist of of a racist hate crime, and then why are we allowing another sapient being to agree to commit a racist hate crime? Right. Especially when if the soul is all important, 
that soul is knowingly dooming itself. Yes. Yeah, why are you sign? Why would I sign up to be eviscerated from every reality? Right. Because you know, we, what well, we were asking the question: Why? Why would someone sign up to suffer? I think the more pressing question is: Why would someone sign up to cause suffering if that yeah. is the consequence? Yeah. And huh. And the only explanation that I've ever heard people come up with is like, "Well, there are people that don't have souls and exist solely to inflict suffering." And I'm like, "Get the fuck away from me! I refuse to even entertain that because you know what that you know what that le- you know what that leads to you know what that leads to it's okay to torture prisoners because right. they don't have souls. No." Fuck off with that entirely and utterly. Right. That is the road to becoming every high fantasy society from every Brandon Sanderson book in which we have the upper caste and the lower caste who are subhumans and don't have souls and aren't people. And and so because they got brown eyes. (laughs) Yeah. So so with with the smoking man in particular, I'm like, maybe it was just a weird man. Maybe it was just a horrible horrible psychic person who just wanted to use their powers for evil because they felt like it and maybe there was no grander purpose maybe there's no deep meaning or wondrous healing that we can extract from that maybe sometimes the visitors just suck yeah yeah i i do like the idea of him and his two friends they're just wandering uh, evil psychics, and they followed Streber. He's like, hey, that guy's psychic. Maybe he'll join us in our sexy whip party. And as soon as he poked into Streber's head, the answer was a resounding no. Uh, and they got a little butter- bitter. So I have a couple of points that I want to make here. Okay. So ultimately, I, I agree with Jay. I don't like to engage with any kind of rhetoric that gives any kind of excuse for people to act evil, like, you know, implying that it has purpose because of this, that, the other thing. Unfortunately, the reality to me is that sometimes people, things, entities just suck. Now, on the flip side, the idea that if you commit enough heinous acts that you will be eviscerated from reality... I'm on board. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I'm That's on, a nice cathartic image. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that on its own, okay? If you choose, because free will is a thing, I, I refuse, to, I refuse to, to acknowledge that it's not, um, because that's going to break me. Yeah, you know, the funny <laughs> thing is, like, you saying that is either a direct expression of free will... Or it, it is Soul Rory it's a playing the response. meanest yeah. fucking prank yeah. on, on Flesh Rory by making you making you say how much you love free will. Yeah. Fun fact, there was a sociological experiment, I think a little less than 10 years ago, where they took a bunch of people and showed them a fake study that essentially proved that there was no such thing as free will. And then they, uh, they carefully orchestrated uh, within controlled circumstances those people having an opportunity to lie or commit minor theft, and uh, the majority of them became more likely to do so having been told that they didn't have free will. Ah, excellent. Man-made horrors beyond my comprehension. You were saying, Rory? Um, so, like, so, like, in that, in that sense, I, I, I agree with, I agree with you, Jay. I, I don't, I don't like to engage with that because it, it doesn't line up with my idea of the universe. It doesn't line up with any idea of the universe that makes sense to me. My personal interpretation, whatever. 
So, and the other thing is, and I brought this up in Breakthrough, and I think this might be another one of those scenarios where um, Mr. Strieber is drawing lines where there are none. Uh, not saying that the smoking man wasn't some kind of lesson for him to be learned, but ultimately, I don't think that the the lesson was that you know w within this there is uh, a deeper meaning or a purpose. You know, maybe like Jay said, the smoking man was just a dickhole. Yeah, you know? I I did think. I mean, throughout this whole book, that to me was the second most egregious jump in logic he made. The, but the part that bothers me the most from this is the comparison that he made was that this smoking man was bringing out parts of him that he either was implying were negative, and that being homoerotic thoughts, as he puts it, or masochist, masochistic thoughts, okay? Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with these things. True. You can be a safe. You can be a masochist and and be and be that safely, okay. Yes. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with having a little bit of gay in you. I okay? think I think his point was more they were the parts of him that scared him personally the most, just not the way he wrote it. Oh yeah, I know that was my read. That was my hopeful read on. Yeah, it. and 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 the thing is, um, and 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 maybe that's true. Uh, but I can't help but see the line that he did draw there, which is, this dude is evil. He's making me think gay thoughts. Yes. Okay. Admittedly, and, yes. And, and, and like, <laughs> yeah, I want to find the, the brighter side in this because I, I, you know, I've enjoyed it, but I can't not see that line. Okay. And that, no matter what, is going to bother me. Absolutely. You know, uh, as a proud member of the LGBTQ plus community, Gay thoughts aren't evil. They're just gay thoughts. You know, it's funny. When I reached that line in the book, I read it, and then I read it aloud, and then I said, oh, well, those two aren't going to like that, and then I kept going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, just, that honestly just went in one ear and out the other uh, as soon as I got to the part where he was like, the Holocaust was caused by overpopulation. That was the part where I was like, okay, I need to go stand in the yard for a while. Okay, yeah. I take it back. This was the third most egregious jump in logic in the it, book. Yeah, and uh, but I do want to say, uh, in regards to the second half of your question here, uh, could the stories we have heard of malicious hauntings, demonic possessions, and sinister cryptids be serving a similar purpose to what the smoking man did for Strieber? Mm, no. And that's only because I don't think that the line that he drew there is accurate. Okay, that's fair. I do think that stories that we've heard of malicious hauntings, demonic possessions, and sinister cryptids uh, have a purpose, maybe. Uh, do I know what that is? Not necessarily, but I... So, as a specific example, let's go back. Let's go way back to Demon of Brownsville Road. Episode two? Episode two. two. Yeah. Big Bob. Right. Big Big Bob Kramer. Big Bob Kramer, the terrible father. T-posing light bulb man. Yeah. Oh, I do remember that book. My brain isn't totally diseased. <laughs> so could so thinking about that, what what can we extrapolate from that that was a lesson for Bob? Um, don't get haunted by a demon. Be a better father. 
the reason abortion is bad is because a demoness will gather up all of the souls of those unborn babies and she'll make them her dark army. And I, I guess that's kind of where it comes in because it comes to me and makes it kind of feel confusing trying to draw some kind of lesson or 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 good thing that that came out of uh, out of the the demon of Brownsville Roadhouse, like because it's not that there isn't like a positive message that might be able to have been extrapolated from there, but ultimately it kind of ruined his life. Yeah, you know he doesn't. Like, is the house a bed and breakfast right now? Yes. Does he make money off that house? Yes. But does he talk about the haunting? No. In fact, he encouraged, he, in, he doesn't allow paranormal investigators to come in and he doesn't want to talk about it ever. You know, I don't, I don't see that as any kind of positive that he, that he gained from there. The, the, you know, the closest I could possibly come is, and again, this wasn't a lesson, but like Alma. There was a purpose in Alma Fielding's haunting, and that purpose was, I'm severely mentally ill, and I'm filled with unprocessed trauma. Will someone please, for the love of God, get me to a therapist? And you know what they got her instead? Nandor Fodor, <laughs> whose <laughs> and, hypnosis sessions likely made the problem worse. And and maybe, you know, maybe it's just we don't know the whole story and all of this, so we can't extrapolate the 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 what it is. We're not those people. Um but I will say one thing in here and that you wrote here and that I agree with is, uh, you know, encountering darkness has a tendency of shedding light in the parts of ourselves that we refuse most strongly. Okay. Yeah. I can agree with that sentiment. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't need to be tormented to learn these things. True. Uh, then I would ask the, I mean, again, devil's advocate here. You don't. What if there are people who do? Right. But that doesn't explain Really, and like, sure, okay, yeah, it's okay. A, I, Play, playing into it, and in, in a way, I did have to learn uh, lessons to overcome it. I was a drug addict in, a, in, in my own way. I, you know, in my own way, I did heavy drugs for many years, right? It took that to help me overcome aspects of myself, to help me get my life in line, was overcoming that little bit of my own darkness. Um, but I, I, I don't think that I can look out at, this is, I'm going to take it deep for a second. Okay. I can't look at Texas and what just happened there and the evil, the absolute evil thing that happened there and ever say that, well, you know, we can, we can take a life lesson out of this. No. That 18-year-old man committed an evil act. Period. The life lesson is we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. Ex exactly. And I, I don't think that those children's fathers or, and mothers and, and siblings are going to look at this terrible thing that happened to them and say, yeah, I've encountered darkness and I can become better because of that. I feel like so much of Streber's ideas around that kind of idea of suffering are just root deeply rooted in Christianity. I agree. Yeah. And I feel I feel like like we were just talking about, that is just not productive 
for a lot of people. And I feel like it that always needs to be an incredibly personal decision of, am I going to take this terrible thing and start to see it as a positive? Or am I just going to be like, this blows and whoever is responsible for this happening to me is a dickhole and I'm going to punch their teeth in. Yeah, right. I mean, and I mean, very similar uh, to Rory, what you were talking about. Um, God, I, I'm tired of bringing it up, I'm bringing up the stupid car accident. But that period was very formative for me because uh, high school, I was pretty weak spined. Yeah. Um, I, it took me, I, I didn't really see a lot of value in myself or I didn't see, see myself as being someone who was particularly strong or capable. And just the fact that I lived through, uh, what I lived through and, uh, and through that pain and got through physical therapy and got through the months on end spent in a giant plastic shell, it taught me a lot about myself in terms of what, how strong I actually am, what my reserves are, what my limits are. Cause I found those a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could see that I could see what he's getting at in that when we face difficulties, we have, this is the be a bad way to say this, but we have the opportunity to try to grow from that and try to come to a deeper understanding of the self. However, I, where I think he goes wrong is the assumption that all of them uh, can lead to that. Yeah. No, all I, evil can lead to that. I, and I agree. I think everybody's individual, uh, everybody's life, you're going to go through things. You're going to change. You're going to grow based on the mistakes that you make. God, I've made so many. And I wouldn't change them because uh, it got me to where I am right now. And I'm so happy with who I am. You know, and God, just saying that is an insane thing in comparison to what Rory would have said even five years ago. Yeah, you you were like uh, drugged out Eeyore. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. And I just, I, I don't, I don't like, it's almost like by saying that there's always a reason or always a, uh, a, a lesson or an all, all, there's something positive to be gained out of every negative. I just don't agree with that because sometimes things just suck and we are going to get through it and we'll become better for it. But that doesn't mean that that darkness had a purpose. Right. It's more, there's purpose and there's purpose and there's positives in how we react to darkness not in the darkness of the darkness did not intend to make us better. Exactly. Exactly. That, yeah. Nail on head right there. Now I, I did do some thinking on this and thinking back to our earlier books, I did come up with a couple of examples, which are maybes hard. Maybes. Uh, one example, for example, uh, being the shadows discussed in spiritual alchemy with Jenny Tyson. Yeah. Ultimately they kind of became teaching tools. Yeah. Uh, and I could kind of see that, Similarly, uh, back in episode seven, I believe the Michigan Dogman book we read, uh, the Dogman was often seen protecting and kind of warding people away from, or presumed, presumably warding people away from areas with Indian burial mounts. So mm-hmm. maybe sometimes we encounter scary things to prevent us from going to places that are actually dangerous for us. So maybe there are some things out there that look evil to us, but really are doing us a service. I I like you guys. I don't think that is the majority of the situ uh, of the evil perpetuated in the world. 
But granted, I think the vast majority of the evil in the world comes from us. Us yes. living meat monkeys here, making very poor decisions. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for the final section? Yeah. In the next chapter, Streber analyzes what he believes to be yet another form of highly symbolic communication, the Roswell crash, or rather, the Roswell donation. As he argues, like many who followed just before him, the craft that crashed at Roswell did so intentionally in order to convey a message. While he does note that the crash occurred near our earliest nuclear sites, he pays greater attention to the fact that the donation site was in a very close proximity to a series of stoneworks considered sacred to the local Humanos tribe, a tribe which was among those that were nearly wiped out when the Spaniards slaughtered their way through South America. And we're about to hit the largest logical jump in the book to me. In this, he sees a message. When the conquistadors came, they brought with them amazing technological innovations, which were truly alien to the New World. Some records even seem to indicate that citizens in a number of coastal towns saw the Spanish ships for days before they landed, but didn't really know what they were. The massive three-mast ships were entirely outside their concept of reality, and as they were unprepared for contact with a much more advanced group, their culture was obliterated. Rather than seeing the threat the conquistadors posed, some civilizations simply let them through the gate, or tried to worship them as gods. In much the same way, contact with a technologically superior race could do the same to us. Quote, As it unfolds, we have to be very careful to stand by our own beliefs and expectations for life, and to treasure ourselves and our civilization. We need to present our visitors with an open mind, but also a careful one. Otherwise, the warning is clear. Things are not going to go well. Spiritual and mental contact are real and deeply shocking, but physical contact, which is what the donation site is all about, is going to be even more intense. It'll bring with it rapid cultural change, confusion, fear, and all sorts of unanticipated consequences. But it is on offer, or the donation site would not exist at all. For example, let's imagine the chaos that would be unleashed should aliens land on the White House lawn and then proudly and openly declare that not only is the soul real, but all world religions are fundamentally wrong in their understanding of it. Some would react violently, others would clutch to their previous worldview with even greater fervor, while some may just abandon their entire cultural and religious identity in the rush to adopt whatever new worldview the visitors bring. Which gets to the fundamental question of this book, can we handle it? Can we step into that new world so alien and different from what we know, but still retain the basic humanness that gives us value to the visitors in the first place? Part of our struggle will be due to our over-reliance on dualistic thinking and our need for concrete definitions. After all, his experiences with the visitors have shown him that they either live in an ambiguous universe of nebulous half-truths, or that the actual structure of reality is so complex it may simply be beyond our grasp. Are they physical or non-physical, real or not real, dreams or aliens from another world? As he argues, these are the wrong questions, because they are built on assumptions about the nature of reality that may not be true. For example, we may all be living in a collective dream of consciousness, or wandering different levels of the multiverse with each decision we make. Because we may not understand the fundamental building blocks of reality, we do not yet know how to ask the right questions. To analyze this a little deeper, he returns to the vision he had of the Golden City, described in Transformation. At the time, he received a message that the city was, quote, 
the place where truth is known. He assumed that meant that it contained the answers he sought about his contact experiences. Now armed with decades more time to think and process that experience, he now believes the message may instead indicate how the others see the world. He returns again to the input versus output strategies of seeing reality. If the Golden City is their home, and they see the world via its underlying principles, then their home is the place where the fundamental truths of existence are known. And, if that isn't a hard enough concept to grasp, he continues by throwing in a whole heaping helping of quantum physics, in the concept of decoherence. So, in our traditional understanding of quantum physics, particles exist in a superposition state in which they behave as both a wave and a particle until they are observed, upon which the waveform collapses, and they assume the attributes of one or the other. Conversely, decoherence suggests that the waveform never collapses. Rather, our minds simply select which version of the particle to view, while its other form continues to be expressed in some other layer of reality which we cannot perceive. Which could mean that we are constantly constructing reality as we experience it, and maybe doing so right alongside other life forms, which are constructing and living in an entirely different objective reality. However, that is not to say that there aren't some constants, and he suspects the secret to communication may be in identifying these fixed points in our world. After all, we here on Earth manage to somehow live in a consensus reality that allows us to properly interact with one another. Using another synchronicity from his implant to guide him, Strieber was drawn to the work of Wolfgang Pauli, and the concept of the fine structure constant. And because I didn't understand Strieber's explanation of this concept even a little bit, what follows was adapted from Wikipedia. The fine point construct is basically a dimensionless quantity related to the elementary charge, which is a measure of the strength of the electrical bond between particles within an atom, which, regardless of atom, seems to work out to 1 divided by 137.036. If this constant was any different, every single atom in physical reality would be wildly different in appearance, attributes, and utility. And, much like most things in quantum physics, our modern science has no idea why this constant exists, or what it might mean about our reality. However, as Strieber speculates, it could be the linchpin upon which our consensus reality is built. Perhaps by shifting the constant, we could slip into another world. Is it one divided by, or are they saying it's a fraction? So one in 137.036. I have no idea. I read it as a fraction. That's why I was asked. It's one of those. If anyone out there is a quantum scientist, let us know. All right. Actually, if any, if any of our listeners are a quantum scientist, what are you doing? You have much more important work to be doing right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> in the final chapter of the book, Strieber takes a step back to, again, make it clear to the reader that all we have read and discussed throughout all his books is nothing more than one man's attempt to understand the chaotic and bizarre events which have beset his life. He makes no claims of authority or even that he really knows what's going on at all. The first step in understanding, he believes, is in learning to live with the eventuality that we may either never know the truth or that all these possibilities are both true and false at the same time, and the universe is one of nuance and liminality. However, as not to leave the reader empty-handed, he does share a number of other, let's call them suspicions, that he's arrived at over the course of working on this book and via his ongoing contact experiences. The first is that, unlike some contactee claims that the visitors are here to end our wars, 
the visitors have a very different view of human violence. They perceive our ongoing wars as symptoms of population pressure. Like most animals, we seek to have room to grow and, when overcrowded, become homicidal. Unlike animals, however, we construct political ideologies which allow us to circumvent reason and obey instinct. This natural inclination did not concern them until we revealed the ability to atomize entire cities, putting us at a very real risk of wiping ourselves out and hence depriving the visitors of whatever it is they seek to gain from us. Which leads us to his second suspicion, that they are intensely interested in our souls, and not just as an intergalactic snacky treat either. Rather, he reviews the various encounters both he and Andrew had with the blue-skinned kobolds, in which they seem to convey that they were doctors of the soul, reminding me of the claims made by Jenny Tyson's spirit guides in Spiritual Alchemy, in which they claimed to work in a sort of afterlife hospital where they repaired souls damaged by life before sending them back. To support this idea, he relates an incident in which he was in a surgery waiting room in support of a friend, whose father was undergoing a very dangerous open-heart surgery. After several hours, Streber saw the assumed spirit of the patient emerge from the surgical suite and wander down the hall, only a few minutes before the doctor emerged and announced that the man had not survived the procedure. Shortly afterwards, Streber had a sudden vision of the same man being led by two kobolds through the streets of a town in India. The kobolds rushed the man inside one of the buildings, where he was quickly thrown into the body of a newborn baby. Quote, he had not been a very good man in life, but at the same time, had raised some fine children who were a real credit to him. If he had to face his life, he would have fallen at once, and all the good that was there buried in him would have been lost. He deserved another chance, which is why he had been raced into his new body before he had a chance to really see himself. In this way, he suspects reincarnation is often used as a sort of emergency procedure to prevent a soul from falling or destroying itself under the weight of its unresolved burdens and the harm that it had caused the world. And his third suspicion is that communion, full communion, will be far more intense and invasive than simply having a chat with a space alien. To illustrate this point, he recounts a series of encounters he had in June of 2019. During one of his usual 11 p.m. meditation sessions, he felt an intense pressure envelop him, then felt as if something entered him. He heard a voice cry, We're in! He then perceived what looked to him like a complex electrical schematic appear in the air before him, which he now believes was a representation of the mathematical principles which constructed the visitor who had somehow entered his body. In other words, he was seeing them via the input strategy. A few days later, he was in a hotel room when he perceived an odd, double saucer-shaped object appear in the air on the other side of the room, a shape he identified as a vesica pisces, two overlapping discs, also known as a Venn diagram, which was often used in medieval religious art and was meant to indicate that whatever was framed in the overlapping area between the circles was sacred. The form moved towards him and settled atop his feet, where he discovered that it did have slight but noticeable physical mass. He again suspected that he was seeing this entity as the visitors do, via input strategy. He recoiled slightly and the form vanished. Regretting not allowing the visitor inside, he went home and meditated for guidance. That night, while he slept, something came into his room and, he believes, entered him in spirit. The experience, he reports, was profound. Quote, What I remember is a sense of intense intellectual contact, causing pleasure that was almost sexual in nature. 
If you can imagine an exploration of ideas so beautiful and intense that it was like a form of spiritual sex, that might be in the direction of what I felt. And it is because of this experience that he believes most of his previous attempts to describe the contact experience were wrong or misguided, filled with his own assumptions and reflections of his fears. Now, however, he feels he is finally seeing them as they are and has at last gone beyond fear. Regarding that fear, he writes, quote, I see how the boundaries with which we define ourselves are its real source, for they don't actually exist and we know it, and facing our borderless wandering reality feels very close to ceasing to exist. But we have no boundaries. There's only one of us, alien, human, living, dead, whatever. What we are is a wave front of consciousness speeding into the unknown. And it is in accepting this understanding that true peace and freedom comes. As Anne told him many times, enlightenment is what comes when there is nothing left of us but love. Once we have set down the boundaries and divisions we use to separate ourselves from each other, the visitors, and the universe. Quote, which shall it be? The decision belongs to all of us and each of us and to them. Shall we join them in what is essentially a new world and a new way of life? Or do they disappear into the dark and we into the storm? We must decide. So must they. It is is time which brings us to our last discussion question Woo, freedom so throughout this book streber makes repeated claims that the new world is coming fast likely due to the existential dangers posed to our planet by the shadows of nuclear war and ecological destruction he notes the emergence and decrease in abduction events and the increasing number of ndes as potentially being part of a species-wide initiation Putting on our believer caps for a minute and assuming he is correct, are you ready? Could you accept the new world that is on offer? And are there elements of this cosmology which you would need to explore more before making a decision? Um, so, I don't think it's possible for us to truly answer this question. And that's because I don't really know if any of us are ready. I mean... If, if the new world that he's offering is we are going to cohabitate in our bodies with an alien intelligence that will share information with us in exchange for getting to ride along and experience our life through our eyes. I'm going to need a few drinks like I, I, I need some time to get to know this dude who's moving in. I need yeah. to make sure I like him. Uh, that's a big commitment. Yeah. I, so, yeah, I don't think. I don't think any of us are 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 ready if that was gonna be the case. Um, I also don't think that's true, but that's mostly just because I find it kind of strange. I guess I don't know. Honest, honest to God, I don't know. Uh, if it was, if it was true, and this was our new reality, I think the only option we have is to eventually accept it. I would need time. Because I, if we're assuming that this that the 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 entirety of this book is true, then I obviously have some hangups, <laughs> you know, based on the 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 other conversations that we've had. Uh, because a lot of it to me would imply that what we believe is free will is not truly the case. 
Either that or free will exists at the level of the soul, but not the ego. Right. The ego are puppets that our soul is uh, marionetting around. Which, which also, I guess, kind of just says that what I believe is reality, what I believe are choices that I've made, aren't actually choices that I have made here, but rather have made elsewhere. And that's where most of my hangups would then, would then come in. Because now we're saying that some other version of me is making the decisions for me here. And that feels like, while maybe not the case, it feels like we are minimalizing the decisions that I'm making here in the grand scheme of things. And I struggle with that. Because the life I've lived here, I've made some really bad choices. And I've made some really good choices. And I feel like by saying that these were all predetermined or decisions that I made you know, prior to coming here, it almost feels like the, the good choices that I make become less. They're, they're not important anymore because I was going to do it anyway. Right. Right. Well, and then the other issue with that that I would, I would need to interrogate more is again, let's go back to the conversation of evil. The people who perpetuate evil, did, did they make that choice? Like, right. Like, it, it then don't we, doesn't that absolve everyone of anything we ever do? Now, the other interpretation I could see this book making, because uh, again, it's very nebulous. You have to kind of read between the lines and interpret it. Yeah. Uh, because so many sections just seem to openly contradict each other. Um, with that in mind, I mean... I could see it being something of the effect of uh, our. So there is one universal Nick that is the soul. I mean, obviously, it's going to have different names under different egos and different reincarnations or universes or whatever you want to call it. And each of those Nicks is going to undergo their own specific formative events. They're going to be born to a specific family with certain, uh, they're going to be born with specific diseases to specific time periods. And those are going to kind of add a layer over the core. It's going to say, this is, uh, now let's see, this is the version of Nick had they had these experiences and being raised in these conditions. So it's still you. It's just another version of you. And ultimately what the point is, is to see who you would become in that world in order to, in the space between lives, gain a deeper understanding of the self. In that case, then free will exists. It's just not what we think it is. It, because we have free will, but we need to understand that everything we're doing here is being observed also by us. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, I, I see that. But again, I, I come back to, like, why does it have to be set like this? Why, you know... Because that's kind of like just a way of saying that I'm kind of presetting my reincarnation, right? I've I've decided that this is this this is the Rory, this is the Nick, this is the Jay for this life. Um, why do I have to? Why is it that we are saying that me, you know, universal, you know, soul me, yeah, soul me is the one making these decisions? Um. When maybe it's a you know it's not it's not that I'm making the decisions to almost like what if my own life, but rather 
I am, if the goal is that I'm seeking enlightenment so that I can become permanently one with the, the universal consciousness, the, 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 the universe, whatever, why, why, why am I setting these weird, obscure things to happen, especially when it's alongside other things that just don't make sense? other these other evil acts that happen around me uh, why can't it be that it's just i didn't make it you know i didn't become enlightened this time around so i gotta go again you know and it's just it's just random which is you know which again i mean all of these are mere possibilities yeah of course i mean we don't know and we likely never will know oh we'll know at some point Right. I mean, I guess in this flesh body, we'll likely never know. Oh, correct. Um, I guess I just, I, I have hangups with anything that gives excuses, that gives agency to, that gives any kind of, or that takes any kind of weight off of actions. Because I feel like our actions are the most important thing that we're going to be doing, you know, in, in this life. Yeah. And if you're taking weight away from good and and then giving excuses to and taking weight away from bad, what the fuck are we even doing? Well, and I mean to return to the specific question regarding I guess the at the most basic the idea of these spiritual ride-alongs. Um I, I, I think one other thing that I need clarified is the whole soul eating thing. Like if they even a little bit, you know, are stealing people's souls by ripping their spines out. Fuck them entirely. Yeah. Um, I don't want anything to do with them. Then. That said, I did have my own little kooky theory that could explain that, but it, it is absolutely me being an alien apologist. Uh, not really an apologist, but so what if, so we, we know that if a soul is sufficiently burdened or evil, it is destroyed. And we also know, I mean, we're saying no, but from previous books, he talked about seeing this tapestry of souls and that the point of existence was to add to that tapestry, to make it the most beautiful, wonderful thing imaginable. What if when they say, if your soul is too evil, it, is, you know, it, it falls and becomes destroyed. What if what they're really getting at there is that the tapestry is beautiful and we don't want shitty parts of it. And so if a soul isn't going to rise to snuff, that those are the ones that the aliens eat. They're like soul janitors. They they come in and they clean up the bad ones in order to make sure only shining, beautiful rainbow bodies are left. I, I hate to be this person, but by whose standards? On whose authority? I mean, in this in this co- in this cosmology, all of ours, because we would exist in a shared field of consciousness. Then the universe does not deserve to exist. Well, because then that that makes because that makes the whole reincarnation as emerging as emergency surgery thing make sense. Because some people they're like, okay, you don't deserve to be eaten, but you fucked up. So why don't we give you another shot? Well, others go, you know what? Let them have them. Yeah, I'm just saying it's a thought. <laughs> yeah, no, I I I I mean, it kind of broke my brain a little bit. Yeah, I I can see. Jay's eyes growing wider and just glaring at me over the, the I'm fucking not glaring microphone. At you. I just I'm not I don't glaring at the visitors. <laughs> it's just one of those things again, it's like, okay, but I, I, I it's like on whose authority are you the one that's that, that that gets to do this? Why are you the one that's getting to do this? Why isn't it us? 
and again, oh, so that's your thing. You want to be the soul? No, leader? I absolutely don't. I absolutely don't. Um, but it almost seems like it's like it, I mean, with that logic, it almost feels like we're saying that they are uh, above potentially being soul eaten, but we're not. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe they don't have souls. Then, then they have no right to judge a soul's quality. And if they don't have a soul, then and and we're going under the logic that the soul is the one that's connected to the to the universal consciousness. Then how are they interacting with us at all? Okay, that's a good point. It, hmm. This also, to me, feels like Christian rhetoric. That I'm tr- trying to say this gently. This seems like Christian rhetoric that he doesn't realize is Christian rhetoric of. Humans are flawed and sinful, and we must separate diamonds from straw by trial of fire, and that can only be done with the unthinking agents of the higher power that is true perfection that will decide at the end of days if we are worthy or unworthy. Absolutely. I think, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about this now for four episodes. Streber is most certainly heavily influenced by his Christian upbringing. It was yeah. the basis upon which he originally built the world, and it informed all of his later experiences and his interpretations of them. And we've talked about that on on many episodes. That your upbringing and your 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 own personal faith is going to shape your view of all of this. Yeah, it may if kills right. It may even shape how the phenomenon fundamentally behaves around you. Yeah. Yep. So, no, I'm not ready for this new world because, like Rory, I have millions of questions and most of them are aggressive, bordering on accusatory. It And also just flatly of just like, no, 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 this is your path to enlightenment if it's just like my brain needs to stay my brain. I need privacy. I need spiritual space. And so, no, none of you are allowed to step inside my body and hijack my life because you think I'm stupid. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, I I think, you know, just kind of coming back a little bit, I'm not saying that I don't agree with aspects of what he's saying here because I do. Yeah. Again, it comes back to kind of like what we talked about with spiritual alchemy, the foundation of what, Jenny Tyson is saying the foundation of what Whitley Strieber is saying. They're the same. Love. Uh, love and love and know yourself. Yeah, and I absolutely wholeheartedly 100% agree with that foundation. I, I, I don't think that there's a person in the world who's not an asshole who wouldn't agree with that. Um, I just have hangups with uh, uh, a, a lot of how we got there. Yeah. Um. No, I, I mean, I have very similar hangups. I, I think ultimately the one, one, one spot I do defer from you guys, I think if it came down to it and this was on offer, I, I, can't, I can't say I'd agree to it. I'd, I can't say I'd agree to ha- share my brain space with another outside intelligence. That said, if there was like a sample period where it's like, just try it for a day. Like if I could just try it for a day, I might do that for the sheer curiosity. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm just saying I'd have a lot of questions that I'd want to want answered beforehand. And like you said there, with the, if there was a trial period, I might consider that because that's going to get me a lot more answers than talking to somebody else. Okay, so what I'm getting at here is that the aliens need to recruit us three specifically to handle the planning of the rollout of this. No. 
I mean, I think we could. I think that's we, why your po- viewpoint will be valuable, Jay. You hate them. <laughs> that, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. I was like, if, it, if we're talking about handling the rollout, I actually think we might three we three might actually be able to come up with a pretty good plan because we'd all approach it very differently. Yeah, my job is when they fall for is when the visitors fall short of my moral standards. I eat them. <laughs> Uh, well, that is a great image. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you could get more down more than like half a visitor before you were full. Oh no, no, no! I'll I'll, I'll up chuck and keep going. Ah, oh. you're oh. going the old Roman way. Oh lord! It's about the sheer horror of what they're about to experience when again they fall short of my personal moral standards, since that's apparently how this works. Um, unless, hmm. Unless we've, it is it, the person making the decision of if the soul falls or not is us, because the thing is we have to remember they say you have to face your own life. Ah! What if our souls are the their own arbiters, like saying, "Hey, yeah, I died, and uh, I'm going to look back at my life, and it is so horrific that I just fundamentally decide I got to be done because I'm going to damage the world board, so I let myself fall." In- Isn't that just saying the same thing as, like Jay pointed out, I can't unsee this now. Isn't that just saying the same thing as, like, after we die, our sins are going to be weighed in front of God, but instead of God, it's just ourselves again? Yeah, it's going to be us standing in front of a mirror holding a scale. (laughs) Well... Well, what about people who hate themselves? What about people who like themselves too much? They're narcissistic. Well, that explains how politicians got to places of power. Fair. They liked themselves so much they made sure they were born with the cheat codes enabled. But yeah, I don't I don't I don't want <laughs> I just watch a piece of Rory's soul wither and die on the vine. Yeah. I just yeah, I don't I don't want a dude in my brain judging me. Yeah. Okay. I mean and I, I think that's completely uh understandable. So I have we beaten that question to death? Are we done? With the new world and with the books of Mr. Streber, at least for now. Uh, we, I think we're done with everything except for uh, part four about the author. Yes. Uh, so, as you remember, with, the, uh, with communion, we went over Whitley Streber's life. With transformation, we went over his fiction work. With breakthrough, we went over his nonfiction work. And now for the fourth about the author, we have only one new fact to share and that is that Whitley Strieber will soon join the Noctivigant crew for a special edition of Midnight Chats. That's right, you heard it. Coming next week, Whitley Strieber is coming on our show to talk to us. And again, I'm not sure how that happened, but I am thankful. Yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm very excited, especially after getting through all of this. I think it's going to be very interesting, and I hope... To God, we don't fuck this up. I'm really just hoping that we can get through it without Jay going on a tirade about how they need to, uh, you know, xenocide the entire alien race. I'm working on that. <laughs> and, Jay, and you know what? Jay's been good in every other interview that we've had with people that they that they have uh, disagreements with, you know, their cosmology on. That's true. Thank you, Jay. You have behaved well for for a mutt we took in off the street. <laughs> I'm a uh, rabbit. <laughs> you can be a mutt and a rabbit. Yay! Oh, rabbit. I thought you said you're rabid. No, I'm a rabbit! <laughs> I mean, rabbit's not wrong either, though. I was afraid we we're going to have to old yell at you behind the shed. You oh, can't. no. Not this again. Let's move into housekeeping. Housekeeping? Housekeeping! Housekeeping! Housekeeping. So, have you liked what you heard? 
please like and subscribe on whatever streaming platform that you're listening to us on. And if it is Spotify or Apple, please give us a five-star review because it really does help us. Especially if you write words. Yes, please write words too, but also drop that drop that review, preferably five stars. And then if you have any thoughts, concerns, book requests, general words or screaming that you'd like to send to us, you can do that in podcast at gmail.com. And we have our social medias. Please give us a follow on Twitter at NoctivigantPod. And I am at MixRoyWicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we also have a plethora of other social medias that you can follow us on. Noctivigant underscore podcast for our Instagram. Noctivigant podcast that is a user on Reddit. Noctivigant podcast on Tumblr.com. And I think... Don't we have an Instagram still? I said Instagram. Did you? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and I think that's it for that. So what do we got coming up next? Well, I mean, obviously next we have the conversation with Streber. Um, and then coming after that, we're going to take a, a step away from UFOs, but to a book that talks about some similar ideas. We're going to be coming back to our old friend, Jack Preston King, who you Ooh. may remember uh, as guesting with us on the episode about Woodrow Derenberger's book. Yeah. Oh, Woody. We're we're going to be reading Jack's book, Could All Religions Be True, which is more spiritual and philosophical than a lot of the stuff we've covered. But um, it's short, and we thought it'd be a nice uh, kind of breath of fresh air as we step out of the, the summer of Streber and back into our usual programming. And we have some awesome books lined up for down the road. We're going to be talking about Sasquatch, occultism, mm-hmm. uh, repressed memories, and once again, we are going to be returning to ghosts. And we Yay! actually do have our first listener-requested book, and it's one of our first, I guess, listener-requested books that we've got coming down the line, too. Yeah, and uh, if you're the listener, you'll know, because we're going to call you out by name, and you can't stop us. That's correct. That will happen. We probably shouldn't say their last name. No. Anyway, <laughs> I, th- I think we're done. Are we done? I think we're done. I think we're done. All right, Nick. All right, good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. Nah, don't get lost. Be safe. You made me do it. You proud of yourself? Yeah, I am.
If my theory that the Greys are soul janitors ends up being true, then I am 100% convinced that Dick Cheney is one they chewed on and spat back up. <laughs>